Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 29, and it is a return to normality. Gen Con and all QA extravaganzas are in the rearview mirror, and today we'll just be talking about new games of interest, revisiting some top 10 topics, and finishing off with some Q&A. Sound good? Well, then I would suggest getting comfortable because we'll be right back. Okie dokie, games of interest. Got a bunch of them because this is like two months worth that has built up. I mean, heck, actually, this is so old. Some of these games I've actually done run-throughs for, so I'll skip over those and talk about the ones maybe you haven't heard of. Maybe you have. Who knows? Let's start out with Dice Settlers, which... I don't know that much about uh, in terms of the actual gameplay. It's set in the American West. It's about exploring, expanding, and exploiting. So the three X's, apparently there's no fourth X. There's no extermination. But we're doing it all with dice. Here's why I'm interested. It's from designer Dave Turchi, who did the excellent Anachrony, the phenomenal Days of Ire, the criminally underrated Redacted, David has quickly proven himself to be a game designer of note. All of his mechanisms, the way he puts stuff together, are always fresh and interesting and different. And so I'm expecting something very, very cool from Dice Settlers. Then we move on to Chronicles of Frost, which is from NSKN Games, and this is the latest game in their Mistfall universe. And I'm interested in this because it's a deck builder. The Mistfall games up till now have been cooperative affairs where you know players are trying to play really, really complex skirmish battle type games. Um, but and, you know, I've done run-throughs of those if you want to see them. And if anything, they were maybe a little bit too heavy for me and Jen, just a bit too complex, too much stuff going on. But I like the environment. I like the designer. I mean, I like the designs. I like the publisher. So I'm definitely interested in now that same universe, but maybe a slightly less complex, a little bit more approachable deck-building game, which actually, interestingly, is competitive instead of cooperative. So that's an interesting twist, too. I believe this one will be at Eschenspiel. I'm not sure about that. Well, I'll worry about that uh, in a few weeks' time when I do an Eschenspiel special on the podcast. But for now, Chronicles of Frost is definitely on my list of games to check out, as is Merlin. This is the new Steffenfeld game of 2017. Hooray! A new Steffenfeld game. 
How's it work? What's it about? I don't know. I don't care. I am getting it sight unseen. Actually, one step further than that, I just went ahead and backed this on Kickstarter because Queen Games, the publisher, always puts their games on Kickstarter as kind of a pre-order mechanism. And um, I've always had very, very good luck getting the games when I back them significantly earlier than we were available at retail. So I want this so bad, I was not wanting to wait. I have no idea if it'll actually make it here before Essence Spiel, but this is... It came out of nowhere to become one of my most anticipated games of the year because Steffenfeld, of course, is my favorite designer of all time. And, um, you know, if his more recent games are anything to go by, he has been straying into more thematically grounded waters. And so, uh, the theme of Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table, that is a very rich and luxurious theme for all of his cool, crunchy point saladiness. I cannot wait to check out Merlin. And then after that, we've got Flick'em Up Dead of Winter. Now, I think I talked about this in the Gen Con preview. I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, And actually, I have to admit, I was hoping I would be able to get a uh, review copy of this in in advance of Essence Field because I'm really intrigued by it. This is a disc-flicking game. That is taking the gameplay mechanisms of Flick 'em Up, which I'll be honest, was not a game I liked. I've actually played it once. I played it as a four-player game, and I thought it was way, way too long and nowhere near as engaging as Crossbows and Catapults. I just didn't see any reason to play Flick 'em Up when CNC exists in the world. But I'm super stoked about this. Not because it reimagined itself in the dead of winter zombie apocalypse universe. That's fine. I can take it or leave it. But what's interesting is about half of the campaigns that come in this game are fully cooperative. Now that is interesting. A cooperative dexterity game where Jen and I are not trying to outflick each other and knock each other out, but instead are working together to stop the flow of zombies. That looks phenomenal, and I've heard nothing but great things about this from folks who have gotten advanced review copies, but I didn't rate for whatever reason. But I'm hoping, like I said, to pick one up at Essence Spiel. Unfortunately, we'll only half of the uh, campaign will ever be of any interest to us because I only care about the cooperative stuff. But I guess for other players, it's very interesting that they add a lot of the Dead of Winter things, you know, potential team game stuff, uh, teams versus teams, and potential betrayers amongst the survivors and stuff. I don't care about any of that. I just want to play a cooperative disc flicking game. That sounds really, really cool. And so Flick 'em Up Dead of Winter, very high on my wish list. As is Azul. Although, interestingly, this, from what I've seen of it, it is a pure abstract. And if this were not, I'll be honest, if this were not from designer, uh, from Kiesling, um, let's see. I always just call him Kramer and Kiesling, but now it's Kiesling uh, flying on his own and making what looks to be a very solid tile drafting game with apparently just about the nicest tiles anyone's ever seen in a board game. I guess they have kind of that domino, you know, that nice kind of ceramic clacky feel to them. And supposedly it's a very strong, cool, puzzly game. So I'm kind of thinking maybe it'll be probably kind of in the same realm as Sans Sushi which was from the same designer, and that was a really, really great, mostly abstract, very lightly themed game that Jen and I really enjoyed. And so I have high, high hopes for Sansuchi, which is a game about drafting tiles and then sliding them around and trying to get them in the right place and combinatorial grid patterns and all that. I don't know much more, but I've heard good, good things from everybody who has played it. But I haven't gotten a copy, so we'll probably have to wait till after Essen. After that, this is very, very cool. An expansion for the Grizzled called Armistice Edition. Actually, that's not true. It's not an expansion. It's a new 
completely it's 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 a new reprinting of the original game. It's a repackaged version. It's the full standalone game of Armistice, but it introduces the concept of campaign play, which is very very intriguing to me. You've heard me talk about that in the past that I'm loving to see more and more Euro-style games get these, you know, story-driven overarching campaigns. And Grizzled, of course, has a very very rich backdrop to be telling stories in and actually I thought the uh, extra thematic content they put in the in the expansion for the grizzled was really really great so I'm really stoked about this. The one thing I'm worried about is I don't want to have to buy the Grizzled again. I really do hope the publisher releases this or releases some kind of upgrade pack so that I can get just the the expansion con because I don't want to have to buy the whole game all over again. But I guess we'll see what happens. Still, very, very cool, the Grizzled Armistice edition. And then after that, we've got Raxon. I know this got talked about because I think it brought, brought up in a Q&A a while ago. Um, basically, this is a cooperative game of crowd management. There's a big milling crowd of people trying to get onto escape choppers in the middle of a zombie apocalypse, as is always the case. And apparently, when you're looking at this grid of cards that are all face down, you're not sure who is human and who is zombie. And you've got to suss out where the zombies are before they take over and wipe out the crowd. So, um, I, I, that's pretty much all I know. It, it seems like it's got kind of an interesting puzzly aspect to it. The crazy thing about this game was the way it was released. It was it had this kind of viral marketing sales campaign where the only way you could get the game is if you were infected by somebody who already had the game, i.e. they would send you an invite and then you... That was the only way you could get the game was via these infection invites. But it has at long last been revealed that the game will be made available to everybody via regular retail channels. So hopefully I'll finally be able to pick up a copy because uh, I really am intrigued by the promise of this gameplay in Raxon, which is R-A-X-X-O-N. And then after that, we've got Australia, which is spelled Australia but with a Z instead of an S. Get it? Australia because the Z stands for zombies. This is from Martin Wallace. And man, this sounds like a really funky game. It's effectively a sequel to A Study in Emerald. It's set in a Victorian era world where zombies are, well, actually, not zombies, it's elder gods are, are running amok. Zombies are just one of the problems that the Elder Gods have brought about. And um, apparently, the uh, Elder Gods have I, I, they've been pushed back to Australia, or they're trying to take over Australia. Uh, all I know is it's uh, a cooperative game from Martin Wallace uh, with, a, with a map of Australia as you're trying to fight Elder Gods. That's actually pretty cool. I like the idea of that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. I haven't really studied it very much. And, uh, but uh, Martin Wallace, I mean, he's a good, good designer. The only thing I ever worry about with him is, will his games work well for two? And time will tell on Australia. Then we move on to the Seven Wonders Anniversary Packs. Apparently, this year is the seventh anniversary of Seven Wonders. And so, of course, they're going to do some anniversary special. Who cares about the tenth anniversary? This is Seven Wonders. So, year seven is where it's all at. Apparently, these are going to get released at SN. I'll definitely be picking them up. I think they're just there's a couple of little blister packs that you can get that just add a few cards, a few new leaders, a few new city cards, etc., etc. No reason not to pick this up. Uh, 
you know, Seven Wonders is still in my top ten games of all time. And so more cards is always a good thing for me. And those are the Seven Wonders Anniversary Packs. And after that, ooh, this is interesting. Another game to be seeking out at Essenspiel is the Fast Forward games. Apparently there are three of them. Fortress, Fear, and Flea. Each one of them is a different type of game. One of them is a co-op game. One of them is a is a, a players fighting each other game. I think one of them is a push your luck game. I don't remember exactly. Each one, these are three games in the fast forward series. They're all card games, and while they have radically different gameplay, they're all from the game designer Friedman Fries. They all start with the letter F, which is kind of his thing. But most importantly, they are. Examples of this new vanguard in board game design where the game tries to teach itself to you as you play. That you don't have to memorize the contents of a rule book you know, and spend two hours learning how to play before you ever get to make your first move. So the, the concept is these cards, as you play more and more cards, more and more of the rules of the game get revealed to you. And... I'm really intrigued to see how this stuff works out because I've talked about this in the past. I think, you know, overcoming the the horrific barrier to entry of our industry of big, long, nasty rule books is definitely a mountain that's worth climbing. And any designer or developer or publisher who wants to try to skin that cat in a different way, I support them wholeheartedly. So I'm looking forward to seeing how Friedman Freeze tries to solve the problem. Of course, there's other things. There's like the Dyes app that's going to be coming out, all kinds of ways to do it. So the Fast Forward series, I'm definitely interested in checking those out. Then we've got... Oh my goodness, how to pronounce this. I am going to take a guess and say it's... Uh, uh, Teotihuacan? Uh, or maybe a, a Teotihuacan? Teotihuacan, let's say. City of the Gods. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Sorry, folks, I'm not a Spanish speaker. But um, this is effectively a sequel to Zulkin the Mayan Calendar. Uh, that uh, rather than using workers on big spinning gears is a apparently I believe a dice worker placement game. So it's uh, apparently it's part of a trilogy. The, who knew all those years ago when Zolkin came out that was just the first, and there's going to be two more games in this same um, you know milieu, the same setting. So oh, I'm, I'm not going to try and pronounce. I'm just going to say it: T E O T I H A U or H U A C A N T O. Twaken. I'm sure I'm totally butchering that. But anyway, uh, you know, from the from the same designers, a different publisher, interestingly, or actually one of the designers of the original game. And the interesting most things to think about it, the description mentioned how your dice get more powerful over the course of the game. And I wonder if that is, you know, some kind of nod to the original Zolkin, which had this whole time management thing of the lo- you put your workers out, the longer they work, the better they do for you. Maybe they're doing the same thing with dice. I'm very interested in trying to find out in this game City of Gods which will be coming soon from NSKN, if I recall correctly. Alrighty, next up, we've got Power Grid Fabled Expansion, which is interesting in that, well, you know, Power Grid is a modern classic with good reason. I totally get why everybody loves it. I think it's a game Jen and I could love if we had higher player counts of people to game with, um, but because Power Grid is a terrible two-player game. And while we tried the robots, the uh, the Otama 
based robots. Uh, they, they were good, but they really just weren't satisfying enough. But this new Fabled expansion basically adds campaign play to Power Grid along with a new take on special two-player rules. So, while I'm intrigued by the campaign play, Power Grid's not a great two-player game. But, oh, a new attempt to try to make it a good two-player game? Interested in Power Grid Fabled expansion. Then after that, we've got another expansion for Eminent Domain, Oblivion. That's all I need to know. Eminent Domain is a fantastic deck-building game. Every new expansion that comes out just makes it better. Uh, Apparently this one, its main thrust is adding a a new action card uh, called Politics, which I I have no idea how they work. I don't particularly care. I'm confident this is going to be a fantastic expansion for a fantastic deck-builder, Eminent Domain, Oblivion. And then we move on to Queen Domino, which is a very weird title for a game, Queen Domino, but that's because it's a sequel to King Domino. Get it? Kingdom Domino? King Domino? Doesn't quite work as well with Queen Domino, but the interesting thing, this is a standalone sequel to King Domino, which was a very cool little fast-playing domino-laying, or I guess they were tiles, but you know, domino-slash-tile-laying kingdom-building game. That was a, f- a fun little title. But the interesting thing is this is a sequel that apparently can stand on its own or can combine with the original game to get bigger and more complex. And that's what I want to see in a King-Queen Domino game. So I'm definitely interested in checking out Queen Domino. And then moving on, we've got Panic Mission, which is from the same designer as um, Flamme Rouge, which was a brilliant bicycle racing game. Uh, it wasn't for me and Jen because at the end of the day, no matter how good the game was, it, you know we were just not that keen on the on the subject matter. But it was a really well designed game. We very much enjoyed it on that level. And the designer also put out a Tale of Pirates, which actually I have gotten a. I've, I've talked about this for years now. Tale of Pirates, which is a real time cooperative worker placement game where your workers are sand or hourglasses, uh, putting them into a pirate ship. That game's great. We really like it. I'll be trying to get a run-through of that done before Essen comes on. And uh, 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 Flamme Rouge was great, even if we didn't like the subject matter. So this designer, what is his name again? It is um, Asker Harding... uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name, Asker. Uh, Asker Harding... Granarud and Daniel Peterson uh, from publisher Blue, uh, Blue Orange Games. That's really all I know. But I am basically interested in this one off the pedigree of the designer. Okay, wait, that's not true. There is one thing I know. Uh, it's a it's a, it's got an interesting twist. It's an interesting gadget, if you will, which I know is something Jen's always interested about. Apparently, it's got a three D the, the box itself is the board. You know, you, you open the game, uh, you, you, uh, you, and, and the, the box represents, I think, a haunted house that you're trying to get characters to move through, but it's a maze, and to move them through, you have to pick the box up and shake it around and tilt it. You know, like those, those little marble puzzles where you have to tilt to move the marble through a maze? This is a whole game based on that. That's a really cool idea. And Tale of Pirates is great. Flamme Rouge is great. So I've, I am cautiously optimistic about Panic Mansion. I'm definitely looking forward to checking that one out. And moving on, we've got Isle of Sky Journeyman, another expansion. Isle of Sky made my top 10 games of the year when it came out in 2015. 
So I have no reason not to think that Alexander Fister will make that game even cooler, even better with uh, what's what's this ad? Um, new player boards, uh, you know, so everybody has like unique starting situations. Uh, a wanderer who actually travels around the world as you're building it. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Alexander Fister seems to be able to do no wrong. So Isle of Sky Journeyman, a no-brainer for me. Then, oh, Dominion Nocturne, another big box Dominion expansion. And oh, I, I have been on, on deck, queued up to do my run through of Dominion for months now. But the thing is, when I do it, I want to... Also include my top 10. I do a top 10 countdown of Dominion expansions. But it seems like every three or four months, another Dominion expansion gets re- gets really revealed. So I can't do that top 10. So I can't do my Dominion. Ex- ah! Plus, I am running out of room in my Dominion boxes to keep all these Dominion cards. Stop putting out expansions for Dominion because I must buy them. And yes, I must buy Dominion Nocturne. I'm sure it'll be great. They've all been great. I mean, we even like alchemy. Um, but anyway... Dominion Nocturne is coming, folks, in case you hadn't heard. But they might not have heard about the next one, After the Virus. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. This is a cooperative deck-building zombie apocalypse game. That could be cool. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But here is why I'm interested. It is from the designer of Terraforming Mars. And you've probably heard of that. Terraforming Mars was one of the biggest, most popular, hottest games of last year. It made a lot of people's top tens or number ones of the year. And no doubt, Terraforming Mars was a fantastic game. A wonderful design. Our only problem with it was it was a little bit too cutthroat for us. But I know the designer is a sharp, smart cookie. He knows what he's doing. So now he's working on a cooperative deck build. Yes, please. I have high, high hopes for After the Virus. Then moving on, we've got Amon Ray, the card game. Now, I have to admit, I mean, Amon Ray is one of those modern classics from Reiner Knizia, but I've never paid attention because it's a three-player minimum. I literally know nothing about Amon Ray. But I do know Amon Ray, the card game, supports two players. And considering how well his card game version of Medici Uh, was, when it came out recently, Medici the card game, was a phenomenal two-player game of Medici, which was always a three-player minimum game. I expect the good doctor has found a way to crack the code. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about the modern classic of Amon Ray and Amon Ray the card game. Then, we're continuing on, folks. There are so many. That's what happens when I uh, take a couple months off. We have got... I have to go to the next page. I'm stalling. I'm vamping. Okay. Oh, um, expansions for Dragonfire. And I've already talked about Dragonfire. It's the Dungeons & Dragons fantasy sequel to Shadowrun Crossfire. Now it's Dungeons & Dragons Dragonfire instead of Crossfire. Same basic gameplay, fantasy settings, some changes to the rules. Um, And the good news is, hey, they've already got uh, Heroes of the Sword Coast Dragonsphere Castle, Wondrous Treasures, and Chaos in the Troll Claws. Four separate expansions in the pipe for this deck builder. So, that's good news. It's not good news for Shadowrun Crossfire fans who have been waiting patiently for a second expansion. Although, I will will go to my grave saying that Shadowrun Crossfire does not need expansions. It was a fully fleshed out, wonderful game that I have played over 50 times now. Never played anything other than it. I've never tried any of the other 
missions and um, just absolutely phenomenal game. So my hope is Dragonfire is everywhere near as good. And hey, it's great that it's getting some support. And to be fair, the publisher has made it clear they are still planning on supporting Shadowrun Crossfire. There is an expansion in the works for it, too. So I'm looking forward to that as well, but it just hasn't been announced. Moving on, though, we've got the uh, an expansion for the voyages of Marco Polo, the companions of Marco Polo. I'm not sure if that's what it's going to be in English. It might be something else. Uh, all I have is the German name, uh, Die Gefahrten de Marco Polo, which is you know the traveling companions. Because I remember uh, Farin is driving. So, anyway, the, the Gefarten des Marcos Polo, which I'm going to assume is the companion to Marco Polo in English. Yay! Marco Polo is a great dice worker placement game. I've done a run-through for it. You can see why. So, traveling companions? Um, being able to do stuff in Venice instead of only on the Spice Road? New things you can do with your dice? Cool. Yes, please. More Marco Polo. And um, after that, and more expansions. Concordia, Egypt and Crete. This will be cool, um, especially because apparently the Egypt map, the Nile floods. I don't know what that means in terms of gameplay, but should be cool. And, I mean, more Concordia is a good thing. Although it's a bad thing because... Well, no, no, it's fine. I finally had to break down. I have got two Concordia boxes on my shelf because I couldn't fit all the maps in one. So I've still got some more room. So come on, bring it. More Concordia maps, Egypt and Crete. Next up, Pandemic Rising Tide. Oh, yeah. This is the latest. Matt Leacock, the designer of Pandemic, uh, collaborates with designers from around the world and does new and interesting things with the Pandemic formula. I love the Pandemic formula. Now, apparently, we're not fighting disease. We are fighting flooding. The cubes represent water uh, that's potentially flooding all over, I I, I assume, uh, the Dutch. I I believe this is, um, you know, set in the Netherlands as we're trying to drain all the water out, which, of course, there have been other games that top, um, you know, Sealand is an excellent game that covers that same subject matter. But using the pandemic formula where the cubes represent water, and we're not only we're just trying to get rid of it, but apparently water flows. So imagine a game of pandemic where the cubes take on a life of their own and move from one location to another because they're moving downhill. That sounds very cool. So Pandemic, Rising Tide, I suspect will be very, very neat. After that, we've got Bali, which I believe I'm going to be able to get a run-through of this done in time for Essen. This is basically a repackaging, a re-implementation of Rapa Nui, which I did a run-through four years ago. It was an absolutely phenomenal card game gen. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And so now it's getting a redesign, a re-theme, and apparently some new kind of mini-expansion content built in as well. So I cannot wait to check out Bali, B-A-L-I. Then we've got Altiplano. Which is, I guess, the spiritual sequel to Orléans, which is one of the best games to have come out in recent years. The bag-building, Euro-style economic engine-building game that was absolutely phenomenal. Reiner Stockhausen is doing more bag building set in a new environment. I have no idea what the gameplay is, but he's done so well with Orleans. I just have to check out the new one. Plus, it's got a llama on the cover of the box, so that looks pretty nice, too. Watch out, they spit. No, wait, that's camels. Anyway, moving on. Uwe Rosenberg is back with another big box game. This year, he's bringing out Neusfjord, which is, I guess, 
Kind of. Is it is it a Viking setting? When I first saw this, I was just assuming it was another Viking game like Feast for Odin, his last big box game, which Jen and I enjoyed quite a bit. But I don't know if that's the case anymore. No, actually, I don't think it is. I think Oh, it's a fishing village in northern Norway. So it's an economic game, economic worker placement game set in a Norwegian fishing village in the uh, 1950s, 1960s. The interesting thing is I believe this is the first time Uwe Rosenberg has ever tackled um, stock market stuff that he's adding, you know, uh, commodities markets or whatever into the actual gameplay. So that should be pretty interesting. Plus, also apparently this isn't as big and heavy as his more recent games. This is maybe a bit on the lighter side. So color me interested in Newsfjord in U S F J O R D. And after that, we've got Noria. Okay, this one. I'm very, very intrigued about because of the central conceit of the gameplay. Imagine a board that has three rotating rings. There's a central ring where you can put workers on, and then there's a ring surrounding that, and then a ring surrounding both of those. All three of these rings, the inner, the media, the middle one, and the outer one, can all rotate independently, and um, they represent uh, you know, different... I, I think it's a worker placement game? Uh, and you know, as, as the rings spin, they you know give you different opportunities to come up. There was a similar idea to this uh, in a game I ran through earlier this year called Barbarians: The Invasion. But that one was a where the the these rings that were rotating around. It was a central worker placement board that uh, everybody had access to. And as the rings rotate, because it represented a volcano, uh, you know the world was constantly changing. This is that same cool idea, but now everybody has their own private one. It looks very neat. It looks like it has absolutely gorgeous artwork. But I, I'm back to admit, I'm really intrigued by the central gimmick of Noria in ORI. Why am I keep spelling these? You can just check the show notes. I'm, I'm done spelling these things, folks. But let's move on to Agricola Art, Artifacts deck. 120 new Agricola cards. Yay! Sorry, Caverna fans. You still don't get an expansion, and we Agricola fans keep getting more and more cool stuff. 120 completely new cards. Uh, but apparently this is for the Agricola Revised Edition. So the question is, for folks like us, folks like me and Jen, who still have the original edition, will these Artifacts cards work? I don't know. Time will tell, but I'm definitely going to find out. Fingers crossed they're compatible. Okay, then we've got D-Day Dice... Second edition. I've never done a run-through for D-Day Dice, but this is a very cool, fun, cooperative World War II-era dice game. Dice adventure game, I guess you'd say. Um, It's getting a second edition. It's been out of print forever. I believe it's going on Kickstarter. And, hey, I'm just happy it's coming out because it'll give me an excuse to get the original one out to film a run-through because I'm sure people would like to know about it. Or maybe. I don't know. Well, we'll see. But anyway, uh, it's a, it's always been a great game. It's a new second edition. I don't know what the changes are. Hopefully a bigger box, though, because all the stuff I've got from my first edition barely fits in the box. Then we've got, oh my gosh, so many Chocolatiers. This is from <laughs> this Jen heard that said, ooh. This is from the same designer as the Valeria series of games, which we think that I mean, even though we haven't necessarily all been for us, because some of them have a little bit too much take that in them for us, they've all been great, great fun games. And also the same designer uh, of Sunrise City, which I've heard is very good too. So I suspect the design will be good because the designer's given me nothing but good designs. Uh, and apparently it's some set collection pattern building game where players are actually trying to make the perfect box of chocolates. So, that sounds like a delightful theme. I suspect the gameplay will be good. I suspect it'll look gorgeous. So, definitely 
find uh, the idea of chocolatiers very appetizing. Then we move on to Carthago, Merchants and Guilds. And now this is another one of those classics, modern classics, uh, Porto Carthago, which has been around for years. Uh, it's got a lot of fans, but you know, never really kind of broke through the mainstream. It's being re-implemented now. Um, and now supports two players, which it didn't before. So, like I mentioned earlier with uh, Reiner Knizia revisiting some of his old classics, this is Bernd Eisenstein revisiting one of his modern classics, and I've had nothing but good luck with Bernd's game. So, uh, Carthago Merchants and Guilds, I suspect, I I hope for good things there. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be another Pelepenes, that's a hard act to follow, but Bernd is a good, solid designer. Then, we've got some more expansions, folks. Let's talk about Space Race, the card game, Intercosmos. Now, I did a run-through for Space Race when it was on Kickstarter, and I thought it was an absolutely brilliant engine-building worker placement, or not engine-building worker, engine-building card game with multi-use cards. Really, really sharp, clever system. Really made the history of the Space Race come alive. Uh, you know, very studiously researched and studied. Really liked it a lot. The only problem we had with it was Jen hated the iconography of the game, made it much more challenging to play. Now, my understanding is those iconography issues have largely been addressed. And, and now... Uh, it's getting its first expansion. So it sounds like this game's got some life to it. I'm definitely interested in going back to that space race uh, with this first expansion, Intercosmos. Let's get a drink of water, shall we? Okay, more expansion-y, oh my goods, or royal goods, but I guess we should call it oh my goods, Escape to Canyon Brook. Last year, Longsdale in Revolt. That was a revolutionary little title. That's such a simple little small box Euro engine building game, card game should get an expansion that introduces uh, a, a branching narrative story campaign. Well, it's getting a second one. Now we're escaping the Canyon Brook, which continues the story that was told in, in Ro- I mean, I can't believe this. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, we liked Revolt on Longsdale. We liked Oh My Goods. Uh, this has been great. I just can't wait to see where Alexander Fister takes us next in this most unexpected of, of uh, narrative campaigns. Okay, moving forward. We've got Indian Summer, another Uwe Rosenberg game. And once again, he is giving us a Tetris piece tile laying game. So this is following on the heels of Cottage Garden and Patchwork and uh, In the Name of Odin. He's doing it again. I don't know how it's going to be different, but apparently this is only step two in a trilogy of games. Cottage Garden was the first one. Indian Summer is the second one. Should be interesting to see what the third one was. Now, Patchwork was phenomenal. Cottage Garden was great. It was good, but just too light for me and Jed. It'd be interesting to see if Indian Garden is somewhere between the two. I don't really know, but I'm definitely going to check it out. Now, next game, Stuffed Fables. Oh, I am scared, folks. I want to. I, I love the. I love the idea of this game so much. Apparently, we are the trusted stuffed animals of a little girl who is sleeping peacefully, and it's our job to protect her at night from the nightmares that come. And so, it's an adventure, um, you know, uh, questing 
you know, dungeon crawl style game where uh, we were just cute little uh, creatures. And instead of hit points, it's stuffing. We have to, you know, get our stuffing back and we fight with cool little toys and, and things. And, and it just looks absolutely adorable and charming. And it's a story driven game where the game comes with a big book. And as you flip through the pages of the book, those pages become the maps that we adventure through and little mini games we play. Kind of a near and far kind of thing going on there. And it's basically a spiritual sequel to Mice and... A totally different setting, but from the same designer. And now here's the thing. So I love everything about this. And Mice and Mystics was such a lovely, charming, wonderful, evocative game. But Jen and I just hated it, gameplay-wise, because they had too much dice rolling. We just could not enjoy ourselves, in spite of all the really solid, wonderful elements of it. Stuffed Fables also features... A lot of dice rolling, but from what I've read, the dice system sounds very, very interesting. Very different than the normal roll to resolve. So I'm cautiously optimistic that this will knock our socks off because I want to, I, I wanted to love Mice and Mystics, and I definitely, definitely want to fall in love with Stuffed Fables. Then we move on to Tybor der Baumaster, which is a Baumaster a, a mayor? Oh, it's been so long. Let's let's translate. Let's put that through the old Google Translate. Uh, uh, trans, translate, Baumeister. Or what was it? Oh, now I've lost. I'm losing it, folks. This is list is too long. Yeah, Baumeister. Ba- uh, Bau, M-E-I-S-T-E-R. Translate Baumeister is... No, he's a builder. Okay, it's a builder. So this is Tybor the Builder, apparently. Another game... Little tiny box game from designer Alex Fister. So, not everybody knows about this, but there is a museum in Germany. I forget the name of the museum, but every year at Essen Spiel, they do a fundraiser to you know support the museum. And the way they do that is they get designers to make cool little card games. Not always cool, but you know some of them have been very good, some of them have been less good. Uh, but these little card games that the that they then publish, and the, all the proceeds go to supporting this museum. And Alexander Fister has done two games for this museum in the past: Oh my, or Royal Goods and um, uh, Port Royal. Those both turned out to be such good games that publishers ended up picking them up, and they got a, a second life. So, he's doing it again. Tybor the Builder is his latest in this series of games he's done for the was it the, the Österreich Spiel Museum. That's what it is. And those other games were fantastic, so I expect Tybor will be fantastic as well. Third time's the charm, seeing as how the first and the second time were also the charms. Then, moving on, we've got Castles of Burgundy, the dice game. Now, as it happens, this has already been out for like a month or two. And man, I really, really want to try it because Steffenfeld co-designed this with the designer of Octodice, which was basically a dice version of Aquasphere. And Jen and I really enjoyed Octodice as a fun little roll-and-write game. So, I'm not sure if Castles of Burgundy the dice game is a fun little roll-and-write themed after Burgundy. Yes, please. Burgundy is still in my top ten games of all time. It's my number one Steffenfeld game. It is a bit on the longer side, I will admit. That's one of the nice things about Castles of Burgundy, the card game. But hey, can we get an even shorter, quicker taste of Burgundy goodness in the dice game? Fingers crossed. Time will tell. Then, oh my gosh, are we ever getting into this list? 
It is Sorcerer City. This is from designer Scott Caputo, who um, just put out Whistle Stop. I just did a run through for it, and Whistle Stop was a phenomenal game, an absolutely stellar design, so smart, so compelling. And this is his follow-up game to that. And it, apparently, it's something about building a magic city where the tiles that we're laying are constantly shifting around because it's, it is magic and it's alive. That sounds cool, but I'm mostly interested in this because of Whistle Stop. And actually, before Whistle Stop, Veluspa, which was also a phenomenal tile game. So, Scott Caputo knows what he's doing. Color me interested in Sorcerer City. Loot Island from What's Your Game? Now, I talked about this. What episode of the podcast did I talk about this in? Because I got to play a way early prototype of this back at Lyricon. Let's see. So if you want to know more about this, go back and listen to Rado Runs Through episode 21, where I summarized all the, you know, the experiences I had there. I have to, I'm saying this because at this point, I barely remember anything about the game. I played it twice. I liked it so much. I came away thinking, wow, this is maybe one of my favorite games of the year, although it was very early in the year at the time, and since then, a lot of really great stuff has come out. But still, what's your game? They're, <sighs> am I going to say they're my favorite board game publisher? They're easily top five. No doubt about it. Maybe not number. I'd have to think about that. Maybe I'll make a top 10 about that someday. Who knows? But anyway, they're still one of easily top five favorite. I mean, they do nothing but great stuff. Their instincts are amazing. And I had so much fun playing this in its early prototype form. I cannot wait to play the final version of Loot Island. Then, Rudiger Dorn returns to Istanbul. But not for another expansion for Istanbul. Now it's a separate standalone, Istanbul the dice game, Istanbul das Würfenspiel. Würfelspiel. Yay! Uh, Istanbul was a brilliant game, make no mistake. Uh, as a pickup and deliver that we actually enjoyed ourselves. Really, really start clever stuff. Um, I had some issues with it as a two-player experience. I don't know if this will fix that. I don't know if they were really issues. A lot of people disagree with me. But suffice to say, Istanbul is still a brilliant, brilliant design. So I expect this to be brilliant as well. As is the uh, next game on this list from uh, Rudiger Dorn, Karuba das Kartenspiel. Karuba the card game. Yeah, maybe. So Karuba was a fantastic game, and now he's reimagining it as a card game, which like, makes total sense. I mean, the first one was a tile laying game, but now we're going to be just doing, I don't know, maybe it's going to be the exact same game with cards versus, instead of tiles. I don't know, but Karuba was great, so I'm definitely interested in a card game version of it. Karuba das Kartenspiel. Oh, almost there, folks. No, this is it. One more. Oh, on Kickstarter, right now is the seventh continent. What goes up must come down. Now, chances are, if you're a fan of the show, you already knew that, because I did a revisit, update, or run-through final thoughts for seventh continent, now that Jen and I have played it for over 15 hours. But it probably bears repeating it's on Kickstarter right now. Normally, I wouldn't um, you know, go on about it because, hey, if you miss the Kickstarter, yeah, just pick it up in stores. Here's the thing you have to understand. Seventh Continent is, as near as I can tell, never going to be available at retail. The only way you're ever going to be able to get it is if you back it on Kickstarter. It's not going to be on Kickstarter forever. So in case you ever thought you were interested in this game, seek it out now because it might be your last chance. And that's it, folks. Oh, my gosh, I got through two months. Two months of games of interest. I have no idea if you found any of those interesting. I found them all interesting, but now I'm going to take a break. Oh, I need some water. But soon we'll be back to talk about some old top 10 topics.
Okay, everybody, top 10 topic revisit time. Let's talk top 10s. Two specifically, uh, most played and ones we'd love to see 2.0'd. And basically, what didn't make the list in these two topics? Well, for the most played, there were a few that were kind of close but didn't quite make it. And now, it's worth remembering. I mean, a lot of people got confused about this. Maybe I didn't make it clear enough in the video that I was not just talking about games that I have played unique sessions of the most times. That's not what the list was at all. Um, Because if it was, Escape, Curse of the Temple, would have easily come out very, very high in the list. Because, I mean, we've played that game, God, I can't even tell you how many times we played it. But it's only a 10-minute game. So it doesn't matter how many times we've played it. It it can't compete against these other ones that like take two or three hours, and we've only played them 10 times. So, of course, those are going to come out way ahead. So a lot of games people expected to see on the list didn't make it. But ones that just missed are include Carcassonne the Castle. And that really shouldn't be a surprise because that was one of our early discovered games that we played a ton. We have, and I've talked about this in the past how much we played this game. And uh, yeah, I think it, it was kind of hard to say because we're kind of going way back into the uh, you know the, the 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 hidden recesses of my uh, shattered memory, uh, scatterbrained brain, but. I know we've played that so much, but I just couldn't say with confidence that it beat any of the ones that made the list. But I, mean, I can't tell you how many Carcassonne castles we have built over the years. A, a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. Another one, Tobago, has actually gotten quite a bit of play, um, You know, especially because it's one of Jen's favorite gateways. We've actually used this with many, many different people. Uh, it's actually tricky. It isn't the best gateway in the world, if I'm honest, because the rules about how the Jeep can transfer from one region to another really mess people up. And it takes a while for people to get used to that. But it's so fun and so compelling. And, um, you know, and Jen would, she welcomes any opportunity to play the thing. And I've done run throughs for it. I've talked about it in the past, but Tobago was uh, a runner up. Big runner ups. And in fact, I will say this one strictly speaking, should have made the list. Seven Wonders. The reason it didn't is because I was trying to do this list considering both me and Jen. If it were just me, yeah, Seven Wonders would have totally made it because I have played, I'm not going to say hundreds, but dozens. And I mean, I've played it a ton with Jen, but I have played dozens and dozens of games with my old co-workers at Splash Damage Studios in Bromley, England. Uh, it was one of our favorite go-to lunchtime games because you know, we could get a full game done in a given lunch. We didn't have to spread the game out over multiple sessions. And so I have played Seven Wonders at every player count countless, countless times. So yeah, it would have been way up at the top of my overall list uh, if I wasn't including games that I played with Jen. Interestingly, another one for the same reason that would have made the list is Small World. I have I have played Small World. I don't know how many times. I don't know how many hours I've spent playing that. Again, all of them in Bromley at Splash Damage with all my old coworkers from the video game industry when we were working on Brink, the the shooter. And a lot of people who know me might say, Mike, oh, you were playing Small World? That's a war game. Well, not really, but you know, it's certainly a, a heavy player conflict game. And it's true. I mean, it's I it's it's not like I was playing it because I was a big fan of the conflict. I was playing it because I was a big fan of my coworkers. I, I liked them all and I enjoyed uh spending time playing the game. And the interesting thing is, 
The nice thing about Small World played with high numbers, with a big player count, uh is you can kind of hide. You don't have to make the game all about attacking, and that was every time we played. My strategy was always to stay by myself, never draw a lot of attention to myself, just be off in the corner doing my own thing, not really claiming land from anybody else, trying to pick race combinations and terrain that would keep people away from me and not actively push a domination engine and uh, and just be all about the timing. For me, Small World was less about the tactical skirmishing on the board and more about the mind games going across the table. My key to victory in that game was always convincing everyone at the table that I was no threat. And it wasn't that hard because I very rarely fought anybody. And I usually put myself where, in a situation where people just weren't thinking about me because all the action was somewhere else. And then I would often, as often as not, sneak the win. So I can't tell you how much small world time I have put in over the years. Um, but then moving forward, other almost made the top 10 would be Dominion, definitely. This is another one. This one just missed it. And strictly speaking... This was maybe, this like Carcassonne Castle, was kind of hard to judge just how many times we played. I kind of had to go by feel on this. It just didn't quite feel like we had played it as much as the ones that made the top 10. Maybe we have. Um, you know, and I have no doubt by the time I'm on my deathbed, I wouldn't be surprised if Dominion does make it into my top 10 because it's got so much near infinite replayability and Jen, I absolutely love it. If I, um, yeah. No, no, I, I, I think not. But time will tell. But still, obviously, Dominion with all its many expansions, and they seem to never stop, but Dominion didn't quite make it. Another one, Gates of Lo Yang. This one is easily at 11. We have played Gates of Lo Yang a lot. This is one of Jen's top 10 games of all time. She absolutely loves it. I suspect it... No, I don't know. Either this or Glass Road would be Jen's favorite Uwe Rosenberg game of all time. Easily one of those two. And it's just an absolutely phenomenal game. We really love it. I'm happy to play it anytime. All you got to do is just take out all the nasty attack cards that just serve no purpose. In a two-player game, they're not needed, so you just, they never show up in the draft. And then we just have a blast growing and selling vegetables at the gates of Luoyang. And the last one that I could mention, but again, strictly speaking... It probably should have made the list. San Juan. But I didn't put it on the list because probably two-thirds of the plays that we have done of San Juan have been of the digital app version on iPhone. That we played that thing a ton. Um, A ton, a ton, a ton. I've played that video game more than any other video game for the last half a decade, easily. But... I was not including digital integration. I was only talking about the real analog stuff, so San Juan didn't quite make the list either. But anyway, those were the ones I have noted here that didn't quite make it on my most played games of all time. And um, Although, heck, man, just in the last month or so, um, since I did this list, things have been changing. Uh, Charterstone and, let's see, Charterstone, I think, at this point, if I were to update the list, has now made it. Onto the list easily, which means Charterstone must have pushed London off. Um, and and uh, let's see here. Well, again, no, I've, I played a lot of this War of Mine, but half of it has been solo, so I'm not going to count that because that didn't include Jen. If I wasn't including Jen, I'd probably have to put this War of Mine on the list. And at the rate we're going, I think Seventh Continent is going to push its way onto this list before long. This big explosion. Is this the year of the epic campaign-driven mega-euro? 
I don't know. Could be. So those ones are probably... I mean, I, I know for a fact, Charterstone, because we're just one game away from finishing the thing, and... Um, and then I'll be bringing you a run-through very soon. So uh, that's it for most played games of all time with a late edition of Charterstone and arguably some other ones as well. Now let's talk about the other topic, games that I'd love to see a 2.0 re-release of. And man, you know, I've got a list as long as my arm, but I, I went with my final 10. Actually, interestingly, I went with my final 10 knowing full well that two of those 10 are, in fact, getting 2.0. So maybe I should have left them off the list, but I don't know when they're coming. I mean, they might take years. Who knows? So I just wanted to put it out there that they're worthy games that definitely deserve it. But what games didn't make the cut? Oh, a bunch, but these were the ones that I was really pulling teeth to leave off the list. Lord of the Rings, the dice-building game. I loved Lord of the Rings, the dice-building game, which I know I'm very much in the minority. That was a weird little game. WizKids just kind of pooped it out one day with no advance warning, and it just, with, with no support, with a rule book that really gave a lot of people a lot of trouble, and it just quickly curled up and died, and nobody remembers it now. But it's too bad... Because I thought the design of it was brilliant. It's basically a cooperative Dice Masters set in the Lord of the Rings universe. And the co-op worked really well. The problem with it is, the reason I'd love to see it redone is, one, I would just like to see it get another chance. Because the cooperative nature of the game was so good. The uh, thematic trappings of Lord of the Rings were so um, nicely implemented. The dice were cool. Everything about the game is great. Um, But... The one thing, the one hurdle it had was it was a semi-cooperative game. And while I personally think it was brilliant because it's so wonderfully and originally and cleverly captured the notion of the corrupting influence of the One Ring. Because for the most part, we want to work together, but there can only be one winner. So we're all tempted to go corrupt ways and make selfish moves sometimes on our turn instead of selfless moves. Really, really good stuff. But I know a lot of people hated that. And so what was interesting is people would say, oh, let's just ignore the only one player can win. And uh, you know, and they'd play it as a pure co-op, at which point the game would completely fall apart because you needed to have players competing against each other or the game just became too easy. So I really do think this game would deserve would be so well-served to have a 2.0 because the core game is really great, but just bite the bullet. I hate to say it, but drop the semi-co-op and re, you know, redesign whatever needs to be done on Sauron's side or whatever to make it a truly interesting and compelling, fully cooperative game. I think it would have the potential to do gangbusters with the proper support from the publisher this time. Lord of the Rings, the dice-building game. Let's see, another one. Oh, Archon, Glory and Machination. This one is a worker placement game from Artipia that I really, really liked. But um, my big problem with it was I didn't think... I I think every time you play the game, it has almost exactly the exact same setup. And either I would love to see a 2.0 version of it where that's addressed, so there's a lot more setup variability in the game, or... Just an expansion to add more stuff. Either way would be fine for me because the core, it was really interesting. It was an interesting mix between almost, a lot of people mistakenly called it a deck builder. And I understand why. It was kind of like a deck builder worker placement hybrid game with an absolutely stunningly gorgeous board. Although there was a whole story with the board too that also warrants a 2.0 to revisit that board because of certain mistakes that were made. But... um, 
more than anything else, I mean, that game it was an absolutely phenomenal work placement. So many really cool, clever, fresh ideas. It just needed more content with a push towards setup variability so that every time you sit down and play, you're like, right, what am I going to do this time? Because it's, it's, it was the same game every single time. So that was really heartbreaking because I liked a lot in Archon Glory and Mastination. I think it'd be a great 2.0 candidate. Another one, Android Infiltration, which is a game that slipped between the cracks from Donald X. Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion, is a very, very neat, competitive, cyberpunk heist game. And I liked it a lot. The core gameplay was really smart, really clever. My only complaint about it was, as a two-player game, each player had to control two characters. This was one of the games that taught me I don't like that. And I very much resented not you know having to control two and, and balance both of them. I just didn't think that worked out as well. I would have liked to see better two-player rules. And I mean, and I think it's a real shame that this game just kind of disappeared. I really would love to see it revisited, given a bigger push, uh, you know, a uh, you know, a makeover and readdress those two player rules for Android infiltration. Then, oh my gosh. Talk about a game that needs this desperately. Patch History is an incredibly brilliant... The core gameplay design of Patch History, the conceit, the gimmick of it, the building this patchwork tapestry civilization game was so smart. But these have to be some of the worst two-player rules I have ever seen. Really lazy, very poorly implemented, and they didn't have to be. I talked about this in my original run-through. There were a handful of things the developers could have done to make this an amazing two-player game instead of a very poor two-player game if they had actually done a little bit more development on it. So, I mean, I, I love the idea of it. I would love, love, love to play a 2.0 of Patch History, where the developers went back to the drawing board on the two-player game. This seems to be a real uh, recurring theme here on these almost made it. Uh, let's talk about a different one, a uh, different reason that I'd love to see a 2.0. Yido, Y-E-D-O. This is a heartbreaking game. It's a worker placement game set in feudal Japan, and you know the city that would go on to become Tokyo. And it had the incredibly unfortunate timing of coming out opposite of Lords of Waterdeep. Because it was basically like a very, a much richer, deeper, heavier, more complex worker placement game, a la Wards of Waterdeep, where you're sending your workers around the city to gather the resources you need to go on missions. But where Lords of Waterdeep is a fun, solid, but light gateway-style game, this was definitely a gamer's game. And it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. It had a lot of really great elements. Auctioning stuff, set collection stuff, really neat worker placement tricks. But, well, like I said, it had very poor timing because they seemed pretty similar, even, of course, they were developed independently. Um, but Lords of Waterdeep basically stole its thunder. And you know, don't get me wrong, Lords of Waterdeep is an amazing game, too. So I'd love to see it get another chance with a big, lavish 2.0 re, you know, reproduction so that it could stand on its own. But the other problem was it suffered. They, they have these event cards in Yido. That there's two classes, the normal ones and the really nasty ones, and the rules come right out and say, don't use these really nasty ones unless you want a lot of swingy variability because they can really crush players and be merciless. Um, but the regular events were kind of merciless too. And I really think 
the developers should have gone back to the drawing board and tried to re-envision how they were using those events because I think they were a real turnoff for a lot of players. Even if they were nothing more, hey, you know what? Okay, leave the events as super tough and nasty, but give me a couple of rounds that I can be prepared for them. You know, kind of like if you want to make events really super hard and punishing and crushing, follow Feld's example and do a Year of the Dragon where you can see what all the events are going to be so players can do long-term planning. Heck, maybe that's all it takes. If they had just done that, all the events are going to come out, let me just see them all right up front and I'll plan out um, you know, my game. And then I think maybe Yido could have found the audience that it deserves to find because it's a really sharp, clever game. But you know, fate and conspired against it. So I think Yido deserves a 2.0. Um, let's see. Oh, also... Thrash and roll. Although, I don't know if this needs a 2.0. What I really want... If I ever get around to doing a top 10 games that should get rethemed, this goes to the top of the list. I talked about it in my original run-through. I've talked about it so many times. I'm going to talk about it later on in the Q&A of this very podcast because Jen brought it up. Um, I Actually, we, I filmed the Q&A before I... I recorded the Q&A before I recorded this part. Doing things out of order. Anyway... Thrash and Roll is a phenomenal dice worker placement game. One of the best ones out there. Absolutely great. With a theme that is such a major, major turnoff for probably, I would, I would hazard a guess, 90% of the board gaming public. Because it's all about dark, heavy, thrash metal bands. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I know there's an audience of diehard um, fans. But, you know, the Venn diagram, the overlap of diehard thrash metal fans and um, heavy economic worker placement Euro fans, I don't know that there's much overlap there. So if the game were had just been got a 2.0 and it was just rethemed to be uh, more of a general purpose band manager, where um, you know when you set up as part of setup, you can be any type you want. I mean, I, now I'm repeating myself of what I said earlier. Um, anyway, it so deserves it because I mean, again, this game deserves to have a wider audience as well. It's interesting though; I wouldn't change anything about the gameplay here at all. So honestly, yeah, it doesn't deserve it because a big part of being on the 2.0 list is. You really needed to have a chance to go back and revisit the, the fundamental gameplay of the game. Thrash and Roll, its gameplay is phenomenal. It doesn't need that. It just needs a retheme. So scratch that one from the list. But uh, that's it, folks. Just a few minutes talking about a few additional games. I'd love to see 2.0s and a few additional games that I have played beyond the realm of reasonableness. Um, and that's it. Hang on now, and we will get you to those questions and answers where we'll be joined, as always, by Jen. Okay, everybody, and now it's time for your favorite part of the podcast, or your least favorite part, depending on your preferences, questions and answers. And we're going to have quite a few. Actually, I'm kind of surprised, just taking a quick scan, a bunch of game-related ones, but not very many personal ones. Which means, Honey Pie, I think you're going to be off the... uh, off the hook for the majority of this. Cool. Because, as always, Jen is here to chime in when she has something to say. Yep. And usually she doesn't have much to say on the first half, but we'll see what we come up with. Starting with the first question from Henrik. Henrik, I apologize. He actually sent 
um, a few questions um, from the last Q&A session, and I totally missed the third one. Henrik, I apologize for that. We're going to make up for lost time back in August. Henrik wants to know, what are some of the most recent games that we finished playing for a run-through that we just can't wait to play again, even though we're done with it for work? Gloomhaven and Roll for the Galaxy, not allowed on this list. <laughs> so, can you think of anything, Honey Pie? Oh, God, we have been playing so many games in the run-up to Essen. Yeah, this is, this is literally the busiest 30 days of the year for me, easily. Because a lot of publishers send a lot of game. Can you please get a run-through done before the show starts? We're like, we'll try. We'll try really hard. <laughs> but, There's only so many hours of daylight. Yeah, and it's been particularly tough this year because of the onslaught of big, epic, narrative, campaign-driven games that require more than just my customary, yeah, we play it a couple times and then I do a run-through. Um, so that's actually making things difficult as well. But so you're not you're not thinking of anything, Honey Pie. I was just stalling for oh, you. Oh, I'm sorry. I cannot possibly. You'd have to go through the list of what we've just played in the last three weeks. All there was right. some great stuff. I, I I remember there was some really great games, but I. But apparently none of them jump out at you so much. Well, you know what? We've been playing so much Charter. Stone, Charterstone, yes. That that is all I can, I have in my brain at this point. Yeah, we have literally played a game of Charterstone every day for the last two weeks almost, just about. Because uh, this is a legacy game that we have to have experienced the whole thing so I can be able to give final thoughts on it. Oh, and uh, yeah, let's see. I, you know, a week ago, I would have said Charterstone, <laughs> in all honesty, because we were really digging it. But I mean, and don't get me wrong, I mean, spoiler alert, we dug it all the way to the end. We only have one more game to play, and then I'm going to be filming it this week, in theory. But man, it was. Uh, it, it's it's a blast, but I've been playing it every single day for two weeks solid. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no game should be put through that. I no. think very few games can actually stand up to that. We had this same problem a few years ago that we really felt that Pandemic Legacy suffered a bit yeah. because we did the same thing, this just marathon, play it as fast as we possibly, possibly can yeah. to get through it so I can do a thorough run-through. The games need to be savored oftentimes. Yeah. And... So, that's weird. We're definitely not getting a chance to savor. I agree with that 100%, but I agree with that in all things in life. Mm-hmm. But Jen, you love doing binge watches of shows. She says yes. as she gulps her tea. Sorry, I was just t- took a sip of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you want to binge watch a show but not uh, binge play a game? Well, because watching a show is very passive, isn't it? And playing a game is very active. So yep. there's a lot more energy that goes into playing a game. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but anyway, um, let's see. The first thing that pops into my mind to answer Henrik's question is probably Jump Drive, which is absolutely wonderful, which is almost the same as saying Roll for the Galaxy. Jen is looking at me blankly. Is that the one where we had the different colored dice and you could you could use them to, one of the dice to re-roll all of my dice? One of your dice? You remember we had that big discussion about it? About how you had to re-roll to, to actually be able to win the game? And I wanted to use the dice most efficiently to put it on the cards, like in the blue area. I have no in idea. The green what you're area. About. Oh, yes, you do. Uh, the, it was the patient game where we were saving the patients. Dice and they hospital. Had, they had the. Um, they were in the capsules with the different bands of things, and some of them we had to work together on, and some of them I had to do the whole thing. Dice. Oh dear! I can't believe it. I can remember a game that he can't. 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, it was we dis- we had a very big dig- uh, a, d- a discussion about our whole life you what, philosophies. Henrik, we'll be right back. <laughs> All right, Henrik. Uh, I've actually spent a little bit of time reminding Jen of what we've been playing for the last couple of months. And Honey Pie, of those things, what jumped out at you? Right. Well, I think definitely, uh, what was it, Bon? I can't remember the name of it, but the, <laughs> oh no, it was spelled in a German way. The card game. Oh, Bonanza, the Thank duel. Thank you, yes. The two-player... So of everything that I mentioned, and I'm, I mean, we've been playing tons of stuff. That you know, so over Seventh Continent and this War of Mine and Flatline, which was the yep. game Jen was trying to think of, um, Near and Far, uh, Elder Sign, Horizons, Black Souls, Alexandria. Over all of those, the one that jumps out at Jen the most—that if we were to sit down and play right now, she'd want to play Bonanza. I was, a lot of those games are long-term games, and yes. they've got a big story and everything. So they're not just... Obviously, we're going to play those again. Yeah, but still, you can be more or less excited about them as opposed to an individual. No, I think at the moment, because we've played so much Charterstone, I'm more interested in standalone games. All right. So you're saying you don't want to jump right back into the deep, dark jungles of the Seventh Continent. <laughs> You've had enough of that after 20 hours. I, I think I, I would like to not do a big epic game. After we finish Charterstone for a little while. Spoiler alert, we've got Dawn of Peacemakers coming. I don't know what that is. It's another long epic story. Hey, you know what? My one exception would be when the new pandemic comes out. We will drop everything for that. Yeah, all righty. But yeah, I mean, we were both really surprised how much we like Bonanza. I thought it was maybe a little bit longer than it should be, but still, absolutely blown away. Had I played that earlier... Had I played it last year when it came out, it might have made my top 10 of the year. It's so amazingly good. Um, But, all right, let's move on to some new questions, starting with Gregory, who wants to know, have we played or know about Tonto Kore? What are our thoughts on the game? I have never played Tonto Kore. I am very, very familiar with it. And, no, I can't imagine we will ever play it for a wide variety of reasons. One, it's... We already have Dominion, so it's not like we need a Dominion clone unless it does it better than Dominion. And what does it add to Dominion in terms of gameplay? A lot of a player attacking. A lot of, oh, I'm going to try and destroy your cards with new special... Wa-. And, you know, unlike Dominion where, oh, sometimes maybe there's some attack cards in the game, uh, Tonto Kori always has opportunities. So right off the bat, um, from a gameplay point of view, there's just no reason for us to seek this out. But, of course, that's not why you're asking. Honey Pie, would you have any interest to play a Dominion-esque deck builder mm-hmm. where you are the the lord of a, or lady of a manor, I suppose, the, the master of this, this big luxury manor, and the entire game, all the cards you're getting, mm-hmm. Dominion style, are a bunch of maids in scantily clad French uh, made uniforms with big anime eyes. You know, it's anime art. Uh-huh. And instead of spending money to hire them, you are spending love to collect them. And they all have special powers. And they're pretty. a lot of them are just duplicates of Dominion cards. But then on top of all that, 
there's a, a special thing where you can take them out of your deck because you send them to your private chambers instead of to the regular chambers, and then they're out of the deck. But once they're there, they can be taught bad habits by your opponent. And it's, it's absolutely insane. It's just this crazy... I mean, you know, it's Japanese culture. They have very, very different social mores. But does that at all sound enticing to you? No, it doesn't. No. It's ridiculously misogynistic. And my understanding is the original box, it didn't start out too bad. There was only a few, oh, look, big buxom sect objects types. And it was relatively straight, but, um, you know, or straightforward. But with every uh, continuing expansion, they have been more and more scantily clad to where now all the mages just run around in bikinis all the time and, um, you know, strike, oops, did I drop that? Poses and things. Mm. And it's just, you know, I don't care how good the game is. It just... Why? I mean, okay, I know why. There's different cultural norms in Japan. Fine, fair enough. I don't begrudge anybody who wants to play it, but... I don't think either Jen or I are interested in the subject matter. Um, and then on top of that, even if it were, even if it were played straight and it weren't all TNA, um, you know, and, you know, uh, sexist exploitation y type stuff, even if you put all that aside, it's still an attack heavy version of Dominion. So it's just really not a good fit for us. Sorry, Greg. But um, if you enjoy it, I'm, I'm very, very happy. Uh, I, I understand. It's a very, very good game. It's got a really a lot of cool combinatorial gameplay. I think it's a shame that they have so significantly killed their potential broader market breakthrough by making something so niche that is going to turn off so many of their potential I mean, it, it, they could have themed it after Downton Abbey, and it could have just been, oh, yeah, we're you know, actually trying to run a household, and we have to not just hire a bunch of sexy French maids in anime-style art, but actually the real people who run the house. You know, an upstairs-downstairs thing would have been fantastic. Although, again, it still has too much attacking for our taste. Anyway, moving on to David's question, who wonders... Does it bother me when a board game reviewer gives a game a negative or mediocre review for essentially finding the theme boring or pasted on? Yeah, I guess. I think that's unfortunate. I think, I don't know, I could certainly be accused of applying too much imagination um, to some games. I mean, as I said in the very, very first podcast ever, I think Dominion is a reasonably thematic game in that the effects that the cards have tie into the thematic meaning of those cards and if you put yourself into the role of this duke or duchess who is just living a a life of uh frivolity and just doing whatever they want to do every day and oh yeah sometimes i go to the market sometimes i go on vacation sometimes i build up my castle sometimes i hang out in my cellar whatever it might be to me it's a thematic game and i don't think it's fair to dismiss the game out of hand as dry or boring or soulless the theme is there if you want it but some games require you to invest some of your imagination and I don't know, does it bother me that so many reviewers, or some reviewers, can't be bothered to flex their creative, imaginative muscle? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just, I'm more sad. Maybe it's just kind of a bummer. But I do feel bad for the game, um, because I suspect the developers actually did put the time in to make sure, uh, you know, like in the case of Dominion, that the mechanisms tie to the actual thematic content. So it's, it's a bother when that happens, definitely. 
Do I feel that reviewers shouldn't review those games if they have a predisposition to disliking it strictly because of the theme? No, I think they should just be able to put their subjective preferences aside and talk about the game solely on its merits. I mean, I have absolutely zero interest in American football games, but if for some reason I found myself playing one and doing a run-through, I would certainly... Oh, Jen's going to go check the banana bread. I would certainly do my best to put aside my own absolute distaste for the subject matter and talk about it mechanically and just try to address whether, if I were a fan of football, would I think it's a good approximation of the game and the spirit of the game? Because even if I don't like football, I could still put my own personal uh, views aside and look at it just based on the merits of the game itself. And I I suppose it is a disservice when that is not done, and it is a shame. Okie doke. Moving on to, oh my goodness. I'm just hey. going to say G, because I have no idea how to pronounce the name. But wait, Jen is leaning over the couch to say something. Yep. I just want to say, oftentimes we do still enjoy games, even though it might not be our genre. And the thing that pops to mind was that um, that rock band one. Yes, that's a very good example. Thrash and Roll, which was a game, man, when we sat down to the table and I started explaining it to Jen and she saw the art because it's a, you, you played the manager of a, of a thrash metal band. And Jen was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I, mean, I hate this already. I just can't stand the sight of it. Um, and yet, when we started playing it, it's phenomenal. It's such an amazing game. It, like Tonto Gore, is such a shame that that game wasn't rethemed to just be something like just Rock Manager or something like that. Or, um, you know, everybody, you know, the game would have worked without the thrash metal. Yeah. Let a player be a thrash metal or a pop band or a country western band or, a, you know, a trance band, whatever. Sorry, that's totally as a side. And, you know, I guess by that argument, going back to Greg's, heck, Greg, I mean, if Tanto Cory was here, I suppose we would try to do our best to put aside our fundamental distaste for the, you know, the sexploitation Japanimation presentation of that game and try to appreciate it for the mechanisms and uh, just try to say, well, you know, if you like this kind of thing, then this is definitely something to check out. I mean, and again, I, I, I don't mean to be disparaging. I, I think there's nothing wrong with the subject matter. I think the presentation is well done. If you like that kind of thing, it's just not for me and Jen. But again, back to that game. It's less about the subject matter and more about the gameplay. I just know we wouldn't like the gameplay. Uh, um, and I suspected we would have liked, and we did like, the Thrash Metal Dice Worker Placement gameplay. And so, yeah, I wish... It, it's a shame when reviewers aren't able to put their own personal peccadillos aside and just look at things more objectively, I suppose. <laughs> All righty. And let's see here. That was... Uh, all right, all right, moving on to G's question from Brazil. G notes that I seem very outgoing and chill overall. We uh, know every now and then playing games with strangers may end up being far from pleasant, often because uh, one single player. Most gamers keep it cool and are polite, but I reckon uh, it could be... And, I, and, and G, thank you, reckons that would be the case with me. Yes, I do try to stay polite. However... What um, is the one or two or three things that would make me mad to the point of losing my manners in public? This question goes for you too, honey pie. Did you hear the question? Yeah. All right, she's still in the kitchen checking the butter, the not the butter, the, the very well buttered banana bread. What would actually make me lose my cool? 
Um, Somebody beating a dog in front of me. <laughs> I believe or any they're animal. talking more about... Or a child. I believe they're talking about more the, at the game table, Honey Pie. Okay, well, that... All right, if, if somebody me. were playing a board game with you and they started beating children or animals, you would lose your cool. Yep. How about more in the realms of things <laughs> that might actually happen? Jen just got back, by the way, folks. Oh, I mean, what um, would somebody do in a game that would make you in a public with, with a bunch yeah, of strangers? Yeah, no, I mean, lose you could cool? be you could be in a gaming hall or something, and somebody could smack their kid or something. Who knows? Um, so that's not outside the realm. Of, and I would, there's not a lot that would probably make me lose my cool. So it has to be something extreme like All that. All right, something. Okay, so Jen says none of the normal unpleasantries. Somebody with insane bo, or somebody being really overbearing, or being really obnoxious, or like being really whiny because they say they're losing all the time, and yet you can clearly see that they're still in it. Or you know, I mean, any. I'm, I, I think G's question is more about those kind of more common antisocial behaviors as opposed to actual child abuse. Yeah. Okay. But it looks like you're getting up and leaving again. No, I just. I Jen like... just wants to play with her mic. Uh, yes, put it. Yeah, don't put it directly up to your skin. Okay, and okay. Um, also, we're having really heavy rains, and I've just noticed that we've got some leakage coming in the side of our. Flat. Oh dear! Is there? Do we need to do something about that now? Do I need to put them on pause? No, I, I. There's nothing we can do. We cannot stop the rain. We can't like you know go out there and put a tarp up or something. Okay. But, um, th- that's never happened. We've lived here for what four years? Interesting. So, sorry, I'm now re-putting my mic on. Yeah. Where it will not shock me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Shocking. So, Jen says child abuse. The only thing, or, or animal oh, abuse. The only what? things that will make her lose her cool. Otherwise, she'll just grin and bear it and soldier on. I probably would, but if somebody she'll keep was a really stiff horrible, I might just say, you know what, I'm sorry, I've got to go to the bathroom or something. But even still, you'd be, you wouldn't leave. lose your cool. No, I think I would just get out of the situation. All right. But you can't. You're stuck there for the whole game. No, no, you're not. You can just say, "I'm got to go to the bathroom. Sorry, play on without me." Oh no, you're saying you're saying I'm quitting this game. Basically, yeah. that's what you're saying. Yeah, I would I would remove myself from a situation. Before well, I, I think would a lot of people would consider that to be a big breach of gamer etiquette because the whole game is ruined. Because if you just exit, you know, well, and if, there's still if there's six rounds bad, left to go, then nobody else is having a good time either, and they're probably going to thank me later. For saving okay. them all of that so, time. So what, and then coming back to the original thing, what would be uh, something that would get you literally to say, right, okay, I'm done. I'm not playing anymore and leaving. In a cool and polite way, yeah. but what would make you politely storm away from the table? Yeah, I guess somebody just being overbearing, I guess, would probably be the worst bit. Mm-hmm. Not letting anybody else have a good time. And, yep. and that way I would feel like I'd be almost performing a public service by ending the game early. Okay. And I don't mind being the bad guy. Right. But even still, you don't think there's anything short of, you know, outright cruelty and physical violence that would actually cause you to literally lose your cool. No matter what, you would keep your composure, which was G's question about being cool and polite. I guess so. I, I guess you don't know until you're in the situation, but right. I, I'd like to think that. Mm. I can't imagine you would ever lose your composure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've very rarely lost my composure my entire life. I work really hard at not doing that. I still remember the one time I actually shouted at a coworker. God, it must be 15 years ago. And I remember it really clearly, and I remember feeling terrible about it right afterwards. It was uh, one of the programmers on Siphon Filter who needed a lot of direction and always pushed back. And one point, it was late at night, and I was just so frustrated with him. I was just like, just do it the way I said. And I kind of barked and, and you know, just 
because I, I pulled rank on him and did that as opposed to my normal method, which is, all right, well, let me try and get you on side with what I'm trying to pursue here so you can see that it's your own ideal. I mean, the normal stuff I try to do. And for years, I mean, heck, I still feel bad about having done that. Um, wherever you are, Dave, I apologize once more. So, yeah, I mean, I think that would be the case. I There is one circumstance when I was playing a game at a convention-type setting where there was one player at the table who was engaging in what struck me as some very antisocial behavior. Some real... Uh, it was a game where there are... It wasn't Puerto Rico, but it was a similar game to Puerto Rico where there's kind of like established norms that this is the way you're supposed to play. Everybody knows this is how it works, and you know for these circumstances you do this, and if you don't, you do that. And and um, there were a few of us who were at the table who were totally new and never played the game before and weren't aware of those social norms. And one of the players who was very, very familiar with the game kept getting very frustrated and very agitated every time we would make what we thought was our best move. And he was like, how could you do that? That is so wrong. Don't you understand? You know. And at one point, I mean, I mean you know, this was going on for the whole game. And eventually I did, I did, I wouldn't say I raised my voice. But I did say, look, you have to understand, you are ruining this game for everybody right now at the table. Is that what you want to do? Because otherwise you should stop doing that. And I did that. And probably roughly the same kind of presentation I just did right there. So that is one circumstance that I can think of, G. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, he kind of backed down. And I'm like, and then I immediately, cool. Okay, cool. Look, I'm really sorry I snapped like that. I apologize. I mean, I really, I mean, can we still have fun? You know, but anyway, so... Moving on to G's next question. Let's see. A question about strip versions of games, apparently. He saw a strip <laughs> version of Cricket, Magic the Gathering, Agricola, Jumanji. Surprise, seeing someone could think it's a good idea to stray strip Magic the Gathering. Since Agricola is one of our favorite games, how do you think the rules would be tweaked for a game of strip Agricola? Parentheses. If this makes you uncomfortable, just forget it and be amused by the fact that there was a strip chess by mail on this list as well. Honey Pie, how would you implement strip Agricola? Well, first I'd start by closing the curtains. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So, strip poker is when you lose. You have to give stuff up. So, um, what is the equivalent of losing something that would make you have to... You know what I what I think I would want to do is make it more interesting by not just doing the strip poker thing of saying, "Oh yeah, every time you don't feed your people, you have to take clothes because everybody avoids begging anyway." I would think it would have to be some kind of new additional thing that, "Hey, you know what? You can recall a worker anytime you want if you remove a piece of clothing." Or or you know, there'd probably have to be like different, you know, just a, you know, a top layer of clothing that will get you one food. Anytime you need a piece of food, you can reduce, you know, if you just need a little <laughs> bit more to make it through harvest, you know, just, uh, just, just take off the pants or the shirt. No big deal. But if you take off an underlayer of clothing, then that's going to be like a full extra worker placement for that round or something like that. What if you got to do the uh, family, um, I don't know, it's not family planning, family, the reproduction <laughs> action if you took off some, some underwear. Oh, Jen's really taking this to different places, folks. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, yeah, <laughs> you could you could uh, you know sort of associate the action with the the Agricola action. Indeed, yes. Uh, my personal predilection would be to make it a new special power you can have to try to add more variety to the game to make it a more interesting experience. Uh, um, right. Let's see here. Although that of course would be implicitly unbalanced because some people have different amounts of clothing and stuff like that. But you know, 
I'll leave it to Uwe Rosenberg to work out the particulars. <laughs> All righty. Moving on. John wonders, are there any games that have multiple levels of difficulty for players within the same game? I find it... Find it difficult. Ah. Oh, okay, yes. Um, you know what? I haven't seen that. Uh, basically, you know, he, he, John goes on to talk about how you know if the if he knows the game and the others don't, he uh, you know he he might try to handicap himself, you know, and stuff like you know. And there's that you know there's lots of that's a pretty common thing. Okay, well I'll, I won't play my hardest, or I'll try some new strategy that I don't know really well, just because I don't want to completely destroy everybody else. But what about games that actually work handicapping directly into the game? I can think of one game that does that, John, and it does it really really well. And I don't understand why more games don't do it, because it's a really cool idea. Nations has that. Nations, at the beginning of every round of every era, everybody gets um, some basic resources yeah. that they'll push through. Um, but you can say at the beginning of the game, whether you, I forget the specific are, whether you're a, a commoner or a prince or a king or whatever, and the higher you are, i.e. the better you are at the game, the less resources you get hmm. at the beginning of every round. So... And the rules just say, yeah, if you know the game and you're playing with people who don't, let them be at the thing where they get a lot of resources and put yourself at a tough other where you don't get as much. I think that's brilliant. I think it works really, really well. So I recommend Nations. And uh, John also says, hey, here's a photo of my Beagle Jasper. <gasps> so Jen must see it. Here you go, honey pie. Oh, my gosh. What a cutie. Oh, look at all those jowls and those ears. Yep. I, it looks like, to me, an older Gertrude, actually. Yeah. 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 Looks like where Gertrude's going to be in... 10 years or something like that. Oh, lovely. As she continues to droop. <laughs> All righty, Chad. Uh, see, Chad actually had a question earlier, and he had mentioned uh, talking about a particular game mechanic, and I think I reacted poorly in my response because you know, I don't, I don't want to be a grammar Nazi. I really, really don't. And honestly, I don't mind if you call things, if you, if you talk about a game's mechanic A or mechanic B, and yes, it's wrong, and, but there, there are mechanisms. Mechanics is a plural for mechanisms, but mechanic is a person who works on your car and all that. And mm -hmm. I, I don't mind. I, it's, it's a little nails on chalkboard for me, but I understand what you're saying, and really the only purpose language serves is just to communicate ideas. And you saying a game mechanic, I know what you mean, so there's no harm, no foul. It's my own problem if it, if it just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Just like how some people get upset about who versus whom and all of that, and will correct people obsessively about it, when it really doesn't matter, because the only thing that is important is that your ideas get effectively communicated context is everything in language but anyway chad circled back around and said he just checked the oxford english dictionary and here is one of the official definitions of mechanic a device method means because apparently in 1990 some publication called games uh i don't know is that games magazine used it in the a neat game mechanic that should have been ripped off by more game designers so, apparently, according to Oxford, mechanic is legit. But you know what? I have looked this up before. I do not have an actual Oxford. Let's just go. All right. Oxford English. Oxford English Dictionary. I am going to check this myself. Not that I'm calling you a liar, Chad, but I think I'm actually calling you a liar. Let's see. OxfordDictionaries.com. Mechanic. Anic. And... Noun, a skilled worker who repairs or maintains engine vehicles or other machinery. Two, a manual laborer or artisan. There is no three, four, five. 
So, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm right here, ian.oxforddictionaries.com. I assume this is the official, yeah, it's powered by Oxford. So you're looking at a different dictionary than me, bud. But, again, folks, say it however you want, and I apologize if I upset anybody by being a little persnickety about that. Okay. Well, and I know, Chad, you were just pointing it out as kind of an interesting observation. But anyway, moving on to Larry, who first's gaming question is... Ooh, okay. Do you think there still may be board game mechanisms yet to be discovered that will have the same overriding effect on the industry as deck building or legacy? Or have we pretty much seen it all at this point? No, we haven't even come close to seeing it all. We... There is such a bold, bright, exciting future um, for the the school, the art of board game design, and we are just on the ground floor. I'm sure there will be many, many cool new ideas, both big and small in years to come. Any ideas what they might be? No. I have no idea. That's the nature of some kind of big, disruptive, world-changing thing. They tend to come out of nowhere. Um, because if that weren't the case then they'd already be here. That's the nature of it. So I'm afraid I don't have any. What areas are left to discover, if any? And uh, he adds, I suppose if you knew the answer to this, you'd be the one to discover them. Yep, I'm sorry to say, I do not have the answers to your questions here, Larry, but uh, sit back and buckle up. It's going to be a fun and exciting ride, I think, as new ideas keep coming. All righty. Next up, in the podcast, a few months back, you asked, or... I always say that I have the worst memory, me. Yet, I can remember specific board games and their mechanisms for many, many years. How is that? And my reply in the podcast was that, indeed, I do have a terrible memory. And off the air, in advanced research, is the only thing that might suggest you have a better memory than you actually do. I revealed my tricks of the trade. But in a more recent podcast, you indicated that you thought you have a terrific memory when it comes to older board games and their mechanisms. So which is it? Oh, you've caught me in a lie! <laughs> oh, Larry... Oh, I feel the bright, the the harsh light of the interrogator's table on me. Which is it? Or are you good at remembering some and bad at remembering others? Hmm. It's probably a little bit of both. Uh, Let's see. What did I... I mean, let's see. Um, I am... What? Okay. I am terrible at answering memory-based questions that are... Tell me a few things that have X. You know, uh, uh, games that require a creative combination of me being able to pluck things out of my memory to answer questions. What are, um, you know, things that, that mix X, Y, and Z? And you know what? I may have played 10 games that do that, but I just can't. I I can't just come up with them off the top of my head. Um, And I just draw a blank, and I don't remember them. And that's a circumstance where I'm going to have to go, and I'm going to have to go do in advance research. So that would be a case of a thing where my memory totally fails me. Um, But if you ask me about a particular game, I will be able to remember the particulars of that because you have given me that initial seed that I need to be able to reference my memory banks. Right, okay, I can't just... I mean, my memory banks are a big jumbled mess. It's a big, messy pile of junk, of, of... cross-reference index cards spread all over the table. And if you want me to just find individual subjects in there, that's going to be tough. But if you tell me, hey, could you find this one particular card? 
And then tell me what's on the card? Yeah, I could pull that out of the jumble and then list off what's on the card. I'm not sure if that's the best um, analogy, but that's the best I can do um, in terms... Of, you know, so I can remember the particulars of what a game is about when you ask me about that specific game. But if you ask me about the subject matter that, I, you know, that was related to that game... I might not think of that game without doing some research. So I think that's probably, that's my best guess as to where that, um, that uh, inconsistency comes from. Let's see here. Gert Honeypie. Gert. Wonders. Of this Gert is a question for you. Huh? Yeah. Oh, cool. Gert Hi, says, hey, no Rado Spiel 17 shirt this year? Oh, dear. Um, that's not my question. That's all you. That's, I think that's a crazy amount of work for very little, for no money. They make no profit off them whatsoever. You're practically giving them away for free, yeah, and it's a bunch of work. Bucks. It's a bunch of logistics. <laughs> it's a bunch of problems with not having the right sizes X Y Z. So, Honey Pie, why aren't you doing it this year? Because you did it last year. Yeah, I know. I was slightly crazy last year. I, I, I've got too much going on. I've got a lot of stuff I'm already doing. Mm-hmm. So I, and and the nice folks at Bat Chit. Mm-hmm. Have made some wonderful T-shirts with your logo and other logos. That yes, are uh, on if them. you want Rado, I should let's see. Actually, I think maybe I did. Maybe I did. Have I updated merch.rado.com and then not told anybody? Let me check this. M e r c h dot I meant to rearrange this so it goes to their site instead of that T-shirt <laughs> thing we did a long time ago. No, I never have. So I need to rearrange that. By the time you folks hear this, if you mm-hmm. go to merch.rado.com, that will be a redirect to a, the um, shop for Batshit Apparel. They do a bunch of neat board game shirts. I'm wearing one right now. It's uh, they're the most comfy shirts we've ever worn. I mean, certainly some of the most comfy T-shirts we've ever worn. Yeah. And... I said, yeah, guys, go ahead, make Rado shirts. They've got three or four different designs. Um, and they don't do. give us the money. Don't give us any profit. Instead, any profit from those shirts, send them to the Sicilian... I forgot what Adopt it's called. Adoptasicilianstray.com. So go to merch.rado.com. If you're looking for a Rado t-shirt, there's several cool designs and colors, and they're nice quality shirts. And you'll be helping um, Jen's favorite charity in the world, Adopt Sicilian Stray, which is where we got Daisy from. Yep. So, uh, woman who's making change in the world. It's amazing what she does. Yep. Last a non-personal question. Let's see here. From Dustin. A quick game-related question. I know your shooting schedule is seriously backed up, but have you ever considered doing reshoots of some of your older run-throughs? Castles of Burgundy desperately needs to be redone. Uh, Oh, and that wasn't Dustin. That was actually Shannon. Shannon writing via Dustin's email. And uh, yes, you're right, Shannon. Oh my gosh, that one is... Considering how much I love the game, that, I believe, if I recall correctly, I filmed that with an iPhone in a dark room. So (laughs) I actually had to use the flash on the iPhone to illuminate the game. And that was a particularly unfortunate one because I had actually filmed the game earlier that day and it was well lit. And so it, was, it wasn't great, but it was okay. But then I posted the video and made it live and somebody pointed out I made such an uber terrible blunderhead of a, of a rules goof. I immediately deleted the whole thing, quickly refilmed it, but by then it was dark and I had no choice and, and reposted it super fast. This was long before I had Paulo in my life who would 
catch those things before I make them live. So that's why you're watching my Castles of Burgundy run through with a flashlight, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, it could really, considering how good the game is. And yeah, I mean, so many of those older games back when I was, before I actually got a decent camera. Yeah, so I'd love to, but you're right. I'm swamped. There's just no time. I'm like a shark. I'm always moving forward. I can't circle back around. I can't stand still. So I'd love to, but um, there are too many new games coming through the door every week. I'm looking right over there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have ten new games that have shown up within the last two weeks, just within my eyesight. If I were to turn my head 270 degrees, I'd see <laughs> another few that need to be filmed. You'd so be... it just can't happen. Sorry, Shannon. I'd love to, but it's just not... Just cannot do it, Captain. Well, you can't physically do it either. 270 degrees. That would be... Okay, yes, I don't know why. scary. 270 <laughs> degrees is the direction I meant, but I actually should have gone counterclockwise, <laughs> perhaps instead of clockwise. That would have been the better way to actually, go, I think. Actually, Daisy has this very strange um, flexibility with her neck. She will oftentimes look kind of... As she's standing up on her hind paws, she'll look at you over by by flipping her her throat up basically yeah. and look at you backwards and then she kind of switches her head around and it's it a just... very exorcist kind of move <laughs> it's it is strange. freaky <laughs> and i just didn't scroll there's actually a bunch more stuff we're not done oh, after shan's question moving on to etai who has a question for the next podcast Ooh. what is a spoiler and there's a lot of text here so i don't think it's quite that simple ah oh, yes okay i remember this um yeah Itai, you know, this was an issue before Risk Legacy, but today more and more games have hidden content, so spoilers are becoming more and more an issue. But what really constitutes spoilage? Uh, I tend to think that anything on the box and anything that can be seen by, a rich, by initially opening the box, and that includes the contents of the rule book, the starting board, and components that aren't you know, squirreled away in envelopes, are not spoilers. And in some of my videos, I've gone even further because to show the run-through, I have to film and I have to say, look out, there's a spoiler! I'm about to open the envelope! And that's a spoiler. Uh, but of course, I warn about that. Anyway, Itai mentions this because recently, on my 2017 geek list games of interest, I have, of course, Pandemic Legacy 2 listed as one of my most anticipated games of the year. And when some new pictures of the box or more, I think it was the back of the box, came out, Itai very helpfully posted them on that post. And, you know, because it's just the box, right? And I contacted him and said, hey, man, because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't edit it myself, could you take those down? Because for some people, that's really a big spoiler to see that stuff, and we'd really rather not see it. And Itai was very uh, gracious and had no problem, took it right down. Thank you very much for that, Itai. But it's left Itai, let's see, coming back to what he says... Um, so I think it might be interesting to elaborate on what is a spoiler for you. Why is it sometimes okay to see the beginning of a game? And why other times does even the box itself oh. constitute a spoiler? Uh, righty. So, to me, that's a really easy question to answer. It just comes down to how much I care. Um, you know, if it's a game I don't care about at all, spoil the whole gosh darn thing for me. I, you know, I, and I really don't mind. Um, if it's a K game I care about, then please don't spoil it. And if it's a game that is, I'm, I'm so excited, I'm beside myself with anticipation for the game, don't, I don't want to know anything about it. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is definitely a game like that. I already am so bummed that I know as much as I do um, because 
pictures of the board have gone out, and I'm like, ah, I didn't want to see that. Ah, I didn't want to see that. Even though it's exactly what I'll see when I eventually open the box for myself. Or and you know, as Etai pointed out, he posted a picture of the back of the box, which again had a picture of the board. I'm like, ah, I don't want to see that. I've already seen it. I'm so bummed. I'm so jealous of Jen. You have absolutely no idea what's coming in Pandemic Season Legacy Two or yep. Legacy Season Two, do you? No, nope. nothing at all. Nothing and here's at all. the thing, Jen is the luckiest among us. Because, Itai, <laughs> you've seen it. I didn't want to see it, but I've seen it. But I didn't want to keep seeing it because I wanted to kind of forget it. And I can't, unfortunately. Getting back to my weird s- memory, sometimes I can't remember anything at all. Sometimes I remember things with a near eidetic memory. But anyway, I want... Pandemic Legacy is going to be one of the game experiences of the year for me. Um, can, if, it's any, if it at all lives up to the previous thing. So I'm so excited about it. I don't want to know anything. I want to go in a complete virgin. I want everything to be a surprise. I want to have that moment of opening the box for the first time and saying, oh my God, look at this. Because having that moment live in the there with the thing physically in front of me has so much more impact than experiencing that moment watching somebody else do it or seeing a picture of the contents. That moment has forever been ruined for me because I've seen the box. I've seen the back of the box and I know what it is. And I'm just, I know there are others who feel the same way. And I'm like, ah, they don't want to see that. They don't want to see that. They want to have that experience for real for the first time. The box itself, I think, spoils too much based on what, I, what little I know about the game and what I've seen of that. And I didn't want it to be spoiled for anybody else. Now, I know... If you go into a store and you never heard of Pandemic Legacy 2, of course you're going to look at the box. Of course, I'm not blaming the box, and I'm not blaming you. People need to be able to make an informed purchasing decision. But I don't need that information to make the decision. And, um, And I suspected on that geek list there were plenty of other readers who didn't need that. And if they wanted it, they could go find it elsewhere. They can find it on the game page itself. They can find it in a million places. As soon as those pictures were out, they were posted everywhere on BoardGameGeek. So they didn't need to be posted in my little corner of the world either. Because if there's anybody out there who has a chance of truly experiencing the game the best possible way, and for my money, the best possible way is to open it up and have absolutely no idea other than what is on the front of the box. Folks, if you're planning on getting it, I strongly recommend. If you haven't yet, don't look at the back of the box. The back of the box will spoil the act of opening the box for the first time and seeing what lays in wait. And it will lessen that experience for you. And Itai, that's what it basically boils down to. Now, if I hated Pandemic and I was only going to play it just because, well, I got to go through the motions of playing it. I've, I've never really enjoyed the game, but hey, I got to cover it for the show. Then I wouldn't have cared. But still, I would appreciate that for others, the very surprising um, content that you will be exposed to when you first open that box is spoiled by the back of the box. The, um, the, and that surprise would be better served by opening the box itself. It's really, that's what it comes down to. Um, I think they could have done the back of the box in a different way. They should. I, I think if, if it were me, if I were at Z-Man or Felicia or Asmodee or whoever it was that was responsible for the back of that box, I don't think I would have shown that board because that board gives too much away. I would have found a different way to advertise and get people excited about the contents of the box without showing that board. Because to me, that was a major spoiler. And when I eventually do a run-through of Pandemic Legacy Season 2, 
Um, Pandemic Myth Legacy Season 1, when you first look at the box, it looks exactly, you know, it looks exactly like a pandemic, a pandemic board. This new one doesn't. And I, would, I will warn people, before I even show that, folks, if you already know you're going to get the game, don't watch anything. Just go out and get the game because you should experience. I had this same thing. What game was it? It's the, um, the Oniverse games. They're cute little cooperative solo two-player games where the packaging inside the box is so lovely and charming. And I, t- and I mentioned it when I did the run-throughs for them. Folks, don't ever look at an unboxing of this. If, you're, if you, you've watched my run-through, you can decide whether you think the game is fun to play. If you do go out and seek it out, don't watch an unboxing because... Opening these boxes is a delight. The way it's packaged, the way it puts it together tells a little story. And don't let some bum with a camera spoil that for you. I would say the same thing is true for Pandemic Legacy Season 2 because the content of that board tells so much about what's going to happen in that game experience. And I think people would enjoy it more. And I'm repeating myself now, so I'll stop. I don't think you have anything to say about any of this, Honey Pie. Do you would you like to know more? No. Would you do you think if you got to see right now, you know, Jen is a test case. You're gonna go you're gonna play Pandemic League season knowing nothing how it relates to the first <laughs> game, whether it's a standalone, whether it's a continuation, you know nothing about it. Yep. I could show you a picture right now of what the board looks like. Okay. Of Pandemic League Season Two. Yeah. Would you like to see that? No. I'll Why see not? Because I'll see it when I see it. Uh-huh. Uh I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sure once we get it, we're going to be totally immersed. So, Do you think the game experience would be weakened if you saw the board now? Well, apparently, because you do. Right. But putting our... Oh, yeah. Well, that's just my own personal subjective opinion. Well, you know Would me. you be bothered by that? If you think I'd be bothered by it, then I agree with you. I know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, I was trying to get Jen to come right out and say, I don't think it would bother her. Because talk about memory... Jen has the ultimate Swiss cheese memory for anything that has anything to do with pop culture entertainment. Jen can watch a movie spoiler that spoil you know you know those spoilers that breaks down beat by beat the entire movie and ruins everything. Jen will watch those and totally forget about them within a week, and uh, and still watch the movie as if she never seen that. Whereas me, I'll remember them. Um, you know, that's actually a good car- parallel. Um, I. Did not watch any of the trailers for Spider-Man Homecoming. I just didn't want to see him because I was so excited about that movie. I wanted to be able to watch that movie without knowing, okay, I'm waiting for that moment when X happens. Or, oh, this is that moment when Y happens. And I don't want to spend the whole movie waiting for that, that money shot of whatever it might be. It was a movie I really cared about, so I didn't watch trailers. A movie that I'm excited about, but it's it's not like you know so core to my being. Yeah, I'll watch a trailer for it, and yeah, that'll lessen the movie a little bit because I'll remember. Oh, this is that big moment when that thing happens. I bet this is where. Oh, and there it is. I already had that moment spoiled for me by the trailer. But hey, you know what? I got to enjoy that moment in the trailer. That was the same thing. It's a very subjective. It's a slippery slope. You're, you were, I don't think you were in the wrong to have posted that, but I think the publishers were in the wrong. I think the back of the pandemic season two, legacy season two box is the equivalent of a movie trailer that gives too much away. So, I'm sorry I'm repeating myself. Um, let's move on to Joe's question. Unless Etai had another question in there, but I don't think he did. Yep, he did not. Joseph says, 
Does a game that is no longer playable but kept on the shelf for sentimental reasons retained own status or previously owned status in a board game geek collection? Uh, oh, oh, example. Ex- oh, legacy games, escape room games. Yeah. You know what, uh, Joe? You're going to have to make that call for yourself. Um, let's see. What do I do? Hmm. And this is a question that's of no interest to anybody except obsessive board game geek users who catalog every little minute change to their collection the instant it happens. Like myself, and obviously like Joseph here. Um, Well, I can say I still own all three Exit the Game boxes, but I don't have them listed as... let Let me actually look. I have no idea what I've got them flagged as. Because that is a tough question for obsessive uh, categorizers out there uh, who are less than uh, pleased with the limited tools available to us on BoardGameGeek. Exit the game. How have I labeled these? I have labeled them. Yep, I they are. I have labeled them as not being part of my collection at all, um, because for me, previously owned means I had it and I got rid of it, uh, because. For me, previously owned is a. If you go to um, gone.rado.com, that is a list of every game that I purposely got rid of, either gave away as a gift or sold or auctioned or traded away. So I can't put something that. I mean, I, exit the game. I still have them in my closet um, because obviously nobody wants them because they're useless. They they're, they can't be used anymore. But um, so I still own them. But I don't put them on my shelves. I don't really think of them as own them. They were disposable entertainment. So I just kind of made them disappear. That's what I've done. I'm not saying it's the right thing. I think this is a tough bridge that everybody has to cross on their own. And I wish you the best of luck, Joe. Um, and that was... I realized for some folks that was an absolutely ridiculous question. But believe me, there are people out there like me and Joe where this stuff is important. Anyway, moving on to Michael who admits, I've probably answered this before, but he's curious, how do I establish my ratings on BoardGameGeek? Nice follow-up to Joe's question. I'm glad you asked, Michael. Go to faq.rado.com. It's one of the more recent... uh, So it's going to be down at the bottom. It's like in the 20s, like 21 or 22 or 23. One of the lower questions on the FAQ, I go into exacting detail about all the particulars of how I categorize and rank and classify... Um, all the games in my collection. So all the details are there for you. And finally, the last game-related question from Steve. Honey Pie. Yes. Are we coming to... Or no, no. Steve is coming to Essen for the first time. Ah. Where exactly can he find us at the convention? Because he'd <laughs> love to say hello. Oh, well, it's easy to, for me because I'll be at the NSKN Games stand. What booth is that? That is um, boot. That's in Hall One, and I think it's it's one twenty four, but I can't remember if it's G or uh, it's G. It's G. Jen will be all four days at the convention at the NSKN booth, Hall One, G one twenty four. Easy to find. She will be hawking her wares. Hawking. She will be busking like nobody's business, uh, and you can swing by and say hi anytime you want. Me. I am a shadow in the night. I am light on the wind. I am I am everywhere and nowhere. It's it's tough to find me. If you spot me, I will probably literally not 
figuratively, this is not exaggerating, I will likely literally be running from one place to the next because Essenspiel every year is me spending pretty much four non-stop days collecting a year's worth of games for me to film. Um, so you'll spot me with a little trolley and a cardboard box, and I'm being very careful not to tip over as I take corners at high speed, <laughs> trying not to slam into other people, and um, just running from booth to booth. So maybe you'll catch me uh, taking a breather, probably at the NSKN booth um, with Jen, because the NSKN booth people are wonderful, and they give me free water. Oh. Um, your best bet otherwise, at least for the first couple days, at noon every day, there is a as a place that people gather to trade games for the yearly math trade that's related to Essen Spiel. And it seems like every year it's in a different place. The last couple of years, it's been outside. So on Thursday and Friday, and maybe Saturday and Sunday, you'll be able to find me between the hours of 12 and 1 amongst a gigantic swarming crowd of probably 300 people all holding game boxes high in the air trying to find the person that they've agreed to swap sell with. or swap that game with. So you'll be able to find me there. Otherwise, just keep watching for the blur because that'll be me <laughs> running from place to place. The Rado running blur. The, yeah. And also, Steve wants to know... Oh, yes. Uh, um... Uh, I already told you about this. This was from this morning. Steve is bringing an almost empty suitcase from England, um, yes. planning on filling it with stuff coming home. And honey pie, Steve would like to offer if there's anything from England you want, uh, some marmite, perhaps. I don't need any marmite from England. No, from jolly old, from old blighty. Right. Jen will follow up with Steve on that. And with that, folks, we are done with the game-related questions. And if you hang on, we'll come back with some personal ones, although surprisingly not very many. Uh, or, if you don't care about Jen's and my personal life, you already heard more than enough personal life as it was just by hearing about our dog's weird neck. Um, <laughs> you can uh, bail out now, and I'm just going to say thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. <laughs> that was me trying to do one of those... Uh, you know, the, the the record needle? Oh. How do you make that was... sound? Okay, yep. I thought you were pulling the emergency brake in the car. And... Well, that'd be fine, too. Can you can you make the record needle scratch? <laughs> you know. No. Wait, all right. <laughs> well, anyway, folks, sorry. We're not done yet because literally. A second ago. Just not 30 seconds after I pressed stop <laughs> recording, Natalie came in with questions. So we ain't out of the woods yet, folks. Honey pie. Yeah. Natalie wants to know, and this one's directly to you. Mm. Since you like gadgetry in games, what were your thoughts on Dice Forge? Right. Well, I liked it because I think it's really cool that it's customizable. And you don't know what you're going to get and you're not, you don't know what you're going for, really. So I thought that was really cool. And um, I think it was also good because you beat me at that <laughs> game. I would just like to state for the record that that was one of the ones you won. Yeah. Actually, I... Asked, I asked Jen, or she, she. I want to know what the question is beforehand. So I asked her, and she, she didn't. Just so you know, Jen didn't remember what Dice Forge was. I had to remind her, uh, just in case. I, I didn't want to give the impression that oh, Dice Forge had such a strong, indelible impression on her that she would remember it throughout the years. Fair enough. She didn't remember it. Well, uh, once you told me which one it was, I remembered it. Yes, she did. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, but I think we should preface that with the saying that I often don't even know the names of the games that I'm playing. Is that true? Yeah. The box is right there on the table. 
the box with six or seven other boxes is right there on the table. There are a lot of boxes. Yeah. So, no. And it's not like you say, honey, today we're going to play Dice Wars. Forge. Dice Forge. <laughs> you sit down and you, you say, and in this game of Dice Forge, we are now learning how to do this or whatever. It's do not I like... need to change my teaching style to work the title in <clears throat> roughly 15 times in the first That five would probably minutes? help, yeah. I'll see what I can do. Or put, like you when you do the run-throughs, you put the, the box right there. So it's facing up and everything. That would when I, when I teach me. you how to play, should I always start, hey, honey pie, <laughs> today we're going to run through Dice Forge. Yeah. Which is, a, I, could, I do the dice whole spiel. Forge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. That would help. So anyway, you did like Dice Forge. You like the gadgetry. For folks who don't know, it's a uh, dice rolling resource game where you build custom dice over the course of the game, and it's very neat. Uh, you get to change your dice spaces. Yeah. Instead of building a deck of cards to leverage over the course of the game, you build dice to leverage over the course of the game. And Jen liked it. Did you like the gadgetry of it? I did, yes. Did you like the... The snapping and the unsnapping and mm-hmm. all of that. Yep. All right. And I like the choosing and the customizing. Would the it dice. make a list? I mean, would you think of that as a... You always like to say, I like gadgets in games. Would you have thought of that as a gadget? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. All righty. There you go, Nally. Next up, she wants to know, could I do a post-Essence Spiel video where I talk about the experience and what games I bought? Uh, I don't know. Um... I think I said earlier in this podcast, the busiest time of the year is the 30 days prior to the show. The second most busy time of the year is the 30 days after the show, when I brought all these games home and I'm trying to get through them all yeah. as fast as possible. What I do every year, Natalie, is I do take a picture of every game I picked up. We take a picture of the comically large mountain of games before we try to figure out how to get them all in boxes to get back home. <laughs> and I post that on Twitter and Facebook and at guild.rado.com. So at least you'll be able to you'll see it there. Um, will I get to do a review of Palace of Mad King Ludwig before Spiel? You know what? I would have loved to. But uh, Bezier Games did not send me one. They sent me Whistle Stop, and so I covered that. Is that has that video gone live yet? I think it has. And if, if they had sent me Palace, I would have definitely prioritized that because I'm really stoked about it. But I didn't get an advanced copy, so it'll have to wait till November, or December, or January, depending on what the voters say, because it'll be in the voters' hands. And then finally, why did I pass on doing a review of Sunset Over Water? Was it too light? Sunset Over Water. I. I feel terrible to say I do not remember. Let me look. Let me search through my email because I'm sure this must have been a game that's going to be coming on Kickstarter. I imagine you're friends with whoever made it. Sunset Over Water. Let me find uh, Eduardo. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is from Steve Finn. Yes. Um, Oh, I was really torn on this. Let me think. Let me think. See if I can remember what it was. This is the game where you're going for a hike over randomly generated terrain, and you're trying to see pretty sunsets. Are you painting the sunsets? Oh, I gotta look, I gotta look. All right, what did I say? Where did I reply? Search all folders, find my reply. Okay. Eduardo was cool about it. What did I say? I said, it seems really clever, but I'm surprised there's no attempt to tighten the board for two players so that you get into more tricky situations as you're trying to move around, and with no dummy player, competition for daily bonuses, he seems. Um... Seems like it won't be as tense with only one other player. From reading the rules, 
it really sounds like you want at least three for the game to really sing, so I hate to say it, but I think I'll have to pass on covering this one. Very sorry about this, frowny face. Hey, folks, you just got a brief behind-the-scenes sneak peek at how it goes. That's one of the nine out of ten games I said no to when they asked me to do a run-through for it. Oh, actually, and this game does look really, really cool. I'm sure it's going to be gorgeous. I think it was Beth Sobel's art, uh, and she's just phenomenal. And Steve Finn designs great, great games. But... Um, yeah, I remember looking at it and reading the rules. And here's the thing. I, you know, I could be totally wrong on this. I'm making a snap judgment based on my experience uh, from playing lots of, you know, at this point, thousands of games. Are we to thousands yet? Probably uh, by now. Maybe. I mean, I figured out the other day I've done almost 900 game run-throughs. So <laughs> must Holy be getting cow. close. Must yeah. be getting close. But anyway, uh, it looks really sharp. But... You know, it's, if it, I think it was a 5x5 five five grid. And the thing is, as you walk around from grid to grid, cards get removed from the board. And so, you know, the, the, the board gets tighter and it gets trickier about how you're having to walk around and can you find a path back from where you started. And, and that all seems really, really cool. And it looks like it'll be gorgeous. But with only two players, there's just not going to be that many people pulling cards off the board. And it's not like the board went from a 5x5 five five to a 4x4. Four four. It's not like there was a dummy trying to move stuff around. And while I suspect it will work well with two, it will be not at its best. And at this point, in all honesty, I'm not looking for um, to do run-throughs of games where, in my final thoughts, I say, well, yeah, it was really cool, and I really wish I could play it with three players because I bet it would be so much more cool. It's fine as a two-player game. And I could be wrong. Maybe it's a phenomenal two-player game. I mean, to be fair, Steve Finn does, Finn does really great designs across the board. But I just don't have enough time to, to take a gamble anymore. Um, so it didn't quite make it. But, I mean, folks, it looks gorgeous. Be on the lookout for it. Steve Finn, he's a great designer. Beth Sobel is an amazing artist. Ed has been producing very, very solid, well-put-together games. The three of them working together, I suspect it'll be very, very good. Um, and who knows, maybe they, I mean, and maybe I'll be proved wrong and I'll be the laughing stock of the industry because it'll be the best two player game of the year, but I'd be willing to bet it'll be better with three or four players than it will be with two. So that was it folks. And now is it time for more banana bread? I think we should have a banana bread break. Banana bread break. Okay, folks. Um, thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Unless you want to stick around for personal questions. We are going to have a few more of those. But if you don't want to get to know me and Jen a little bit better, <laughs> then um, I, I just said it, didn't I? I'm not going to repeat myself. Um, okay, I will. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, hang on for a little bit. After we have some banana bread, we'll be right back with the personal Q&A to end the month. Oh, wait. I should what? point out. What? I'm not done yet. For people who are bailing out now, you haven't bailed out yet. Next one is next podcast is going to be coming in like three weeks because it'll be an all Essen preview show. So I figured I should mention that. Man, why don't I make notes? Why don't I prepare? Oh, I am so scatterbrained. Anyway, hold on, everybody. We'll be back with personal Q and A. Okay, bye bye. Okay, folks, we have just had the best banana bread in human history. <laughs> Hands down, bar none. Ah, uh, who knew? Bananas are great, bread is great, butter is great. It's all great. Cinnamon is awesome. Cinnamon is not bad also. Honey, would you, would you have called that low-carb uh, banana bread? Oh, it's hard to be low-carb with banana and bread. Yes. But I put about a third the 
recipe's amount of sugar in. So I would say relatively, <laughs> yes. Compared to what it could have been, yes. Yep. All right, that was fantastic. Okay, so on to the personal Q's and the personal A's, starting with Jason. Yes. Who asks about my brother. Do I talk to him frequently? Not heard me talk about him much. Can I share his story or any of his story? Well, my brother's name is Ryan. Um, he's three years younger than me. And I'm named after my dad, Richard, which I, apparently the name of Richard is King and Ryan is like Prince or something like that or Little Prince. or uh, you know. I, I remember that was one of the reasons they chose him because they both were like regal names. Plus also, my dad's name is Richard, my mom's name is Roberta, then I was Richard Jr. And then, so we, we were all R. All of our initials were R. Ham. Okay, well, the name Ryan is yes. from an Irish surname which was derived from O'Rain, uh-huh. meaning descendant of Ryan. And the given name, R-I-A-N, probably means little king from ah. Irish king combined with a diminutive suffix. There you go. So, I can't imagine that was the story you were wondering about. So, king about. and little king. Yep, there you go. Yep. That's cute. Um, yeah, I think that was part of the decision. But it was, uh, we're, we're all our ham in my household growing up. But... So, my brother's three years younger than me, and he was always a wild child. He was walking around at a crazy early age and I don't remember this because I was still young at the time but apparently climbing up refrigerators and scaring the crap out of my parents um, when he was right out of the cradle and he has always been he Ryan is one of the most caring and warm people I know but he has always been more uh, uh, subject to the whims of peer pressure than anybody else I've ever known either. And he, his whole life, has always fallen in with the wrong crowds. So while he is a good person, and he always is surrounded by people who love him and you know, respect him, he's generally not... I mean, they have a bad influence on him. And so he has not made always the best life choices. Uh, you know, me and him, I mean, we are the ultimate nature-nurture test case. Because we both grew up in the same weird family with the same weird circumstances <laughs> where we were homeschooled and all that. Um, and we couldn't be in more different places in our lives right now. I mean, my brother, when he was 20s, for a while, he was a male gigolo. He was a carny. He was a long-haul trucker. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of done it all. I have several nieces and nephews, some of them I've never met, almost all of them, I think, from different girls. And, uh, yeah, he's now in his mid-40s, and he still hasn't quite found himself. Uh, you know, he's been in and out of trouble with the law his whole life, and uh, yeah, he's just... And he has a really weird goatee mm-hmm. that actually looks like it's a goat's beard, the way it kind of comes in is all scrawling uh, out. And he's totally bald, totally Picard bald. I would be totally bald, too, if I hadn't been using Rogaine judiciously for the last 20 years, um, and he wasn't, so he shaves his head. Uh, he's really good with cars. Because me, I, I, as soon as I was of age, I went to college and I never went back. Basically, Ryan never left Belfair. Uh, you know, to be fair, he lived in Seattle for a while, but you know, he spent almost his entire life in Belfair. And and I mean, I think he, for better and worse, he is much more tightly tied to the ongoing family life. While I'm really kind, of, well, heck, I live on the other side of the world now. 
And so, I mean, I mean, I could tell you a million and a half stories about him. He's definitely the wild child. Um, he's a good guy. He's funny. He's much smarter than me. When we were both kids, he was able to do math so much better than me. And, um, you know, he had so much more confidence than me and was so much more outgoing. But like I said, he's just always kind of gravitated towards the wrong crowds and d- just, I mean, uh, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's a little something. Hopefully that was of interest, but let's move on to Ben who wonders, what is my best voice impression for both me and Jen? And can we hear them? I don't know. I don't do impressions. Do you? No. Hey, sorry. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say I sound like Jeff Goldblum. A lot. I get that mm. so much. Uh, you know, to this day, I still get comments on videos I filmed years ago or saying, man, you sound just like Jeff Goldblum. And I don't get that. I don't understand it at all. But I get it a lot. Uh, so this is my impression- Jeff Goldblum impersonation right now. There you go. It's very ah, ah, ah. Life finds a way. That's all I yeah, got. Yeah, that's good. Um, no, I think I can do a, um, a Saturday Night Live impersonation of George Bush with not gonna do it. Not gonna do it, yeah. Yeah, uh, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah, those aren't really impersonations. That's just doing catchphrases. Yeah, obviously you can do lots of those kind of things. We want to pump you up. You know, can do all that kind of stuff. And everybody can say, get to the chopper. But that doesn't really count. <laughs> or get out. Get out. It's not a tumor. You know, you can do all those sorts of things. But <laughs> yeah, um... Arnold doesn't really count because everybody has an Arnold. So, no, I'm afraid not. Sorry, Ben, can't help. Moving on to Jeff, who uh, wants to know about Aaron Sorkin. Honey Pie. <laughs> Rank the Aaron Sorkin uh, television series. Oh, West Sports Wing. Night, West Wing, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and The Newsroom. Did you notice I said West Wing? Yes, you did. You yes, you did. Anything? I did. Yep, I heard it. Okay, so could you repeat the other three? He wants you to rank the four series from Sorkin, which <laughs> we're, we've seen them all. We've watched them all. Sports Night, West Wing, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and the, the Newsroom. Okay, well, West Wing, obviously. Obviously. I really like Newsroom. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember the sport thing. What's the sports one? Uh, sports one, it was kind of like the Newsroom, but it was... Behind the scenes at like a sports network instead of a, a news network. Are you sure I saw that? Yes, we did. Uh, it was his first series, and it's a it's a it's it wasn't a drama. It was a comedy, and it was a ha- it, they were half hour long shows. The lead in it was the same lead. At, Peter Krause, I think, is the actor's name. He was also the lead on Six Feet Under. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. And what was the other one? Um, Studio sixty. Which was kind of a behind the scenes of a Saturday Night Live show, and it starred Matthew Perry, mm. you know Chandler from Friends, yeah. and uh, I can't think of it. Bradley, I want to say Bradley Whitford, you know who was Josh from West Wing. Yeah, West Wing as the as the two showrunners on a Saturday Night Live type show. <laughs> oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. So you just kind of dimly remember the other two shows. Yeah, and you just kind of rank them the same. Yeah, I would. I would basically, yeah, uh, West Wing newsroom, but newsroom Studio Sixty, so awesome. and Sports Night. The whole, uh, you know, civilization thing. Yeah, the drive to civilize. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Yep. I wish everybody would do that. Well, Jeff's not done yet, Honey Pie. Uh-oh. Best episode of each series. I'm going to say that when he came out and decided his drive to civilize. Right. So the 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 first episode, the pilot of news. 
Specifically, I don't be, think it was the first episode because remember he had to kind of get to it, and then he kind of slid back a little bit, and then he it was like in the second season towards the end, maybe. Well, the second season was the last season. Remember because they oh. the, sh- the show got canceled, so they had to kind of wrap up the the yeah. second season really fast. Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. I'm remembering a, something where he actually said, "No, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We are." So, and I don't, I couldn't tell you the name of that episode or anything because. I don't know that stuff. But. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't either. Um, but can you can you think of? I mean, obviously, we, we have watched the West Wing in its entirety twice. Yeah, and I have watched the final season of the West Wing three times because I watched the final season of the West Wing, having never seen an episode of it, solely because Janine Garofalo joined the cast. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I love Janine Garofalo. Okay, I'll watch. And then after it was over, it's like, oh my god, that was amazing. Honey Pie, this was amazing. I know you hate everything about politics, but that was amazing. And apparently it was crap, because it used to be even better. So we sat down and watched the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And then a few years later, we did it a second time. So we've watched uh, West Wing twice all the way through. But even still, the thing is, I, mean, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, binge watching makes yeah. it hard for anything to stand out. Yeah. And Jen loves to binge watch shows. And I, so it just becomes binged. a big amorphous blob. Yeah, we definitely binged on West Wing. Yeah. As as opposed to if we had watched it when it was actually on the air and it was timely and covering things that were of the moment and we were only watching one episode a week so it would stew in our brain and sit with us mm-hmm. as opposed to just being one of the five hours we watched on a Tuesday night. So, but that aside, can you think of what's your most, forget episode, what's your most standout moment from West Wing? And then, and then Jeff can figure out what episode it was. <laughs> Why don't you work on it while I think about it? Because I, 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 it's not top of my mind. Well, I mean, I'd rank the series the same way. West Wing, Newsroom. And I'd, I'd go with Studio 60 over Sports Night. Only because, man, what laugh track. Oh, it just made it so unwatchable. I guess you can actually watch it now without the laugh track. So maybe we should go back and watch the game. Because I, mean, I, I remember liking it, but it, it, it made no strong impression on me, mostly because I was so turned off by that, you know, that, laugh, that canned laughter laugh track crap. Um, and honestly, Studio 60, I don't really remember that much about it, if I'm honest. Um, I, other than the fact that I liked all the actors, but yeah, it, it didn't really last. But the pilot of Newsroom, and you know, obviously that opening speech, yeah, that was the amazing. commencement speech, yeah. which... You know, it wasn't. A, it was, he was being interviewed on TV with two other experts. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. He, he was. He was part of a discussion panel, mm-hmm. and somebody in the audience asked, "Why is America the greatest country in the world?" And he said, "It's not." Yep. And I think actually that was really kind of a start of Americans kind of starting to look at each, at each other and go, "Well, wait a minute, maybe." I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving it too much credit, but that was certainly an awakening in me of thinking, "Yeah, actually, <laughs> maybe things aren't all sunny and rosy." Yep. Um, so, but West Wing is the one we should be able to answer. Of all the many things that happened on West Wing, God. what jumps out at you the most as the most impactful? I don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. I was trying to think of something that Josh particularly did or that the president particularly did. And, and there's so many great things, but we're now we're watching um, Kiefer Sutherland be the president. Oh, on Disney Survivor. Yeah, yeah. And I just can't think of any one particular thing oh you, yeah, yeah it's all you can think of is yeah key for southern you only have room for one television president in your head at a time <laughs> well i'm just understandable i'm just currently living in the fantasy where keeper sutherland is our president <laughs> that's i'm just pretending that that is my reality yeah 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 um let's see yeah i also i mean I'd, I'd love to be able to say a specific episode but it's impossible just because of this whole binge watching thing which i hate but that's the way jen likes to watch tv so 
I have to think of a moment. I have to admit, I mean, since I've seen season season seven is the only one I've actually watched normally. So I probably have more strong memories of season seven than anything else because I didn't binge watch it. I watched it when it was aired originally. But the uh, the debate, the hour long debate with uh, Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda was amazing. But uh, if I go to older stuff. I mean, heck, again, you know, it's everything in the seventh season really jumps out at me because I didn't binge watch it. So when he dealt with the nuclear disaster, that was amazing. And, um, oh, yeah, uh, you know, you know, all the drama around the assassination and, um, you know, Elizabeth Moss, Elizabeth Moss as the, as the daughter. Well, she was, it was Elizabeth Moss, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, you know, as, as the first daughter, you know, uh, you know dating a black man. And, 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 you know, I mean, there were so many incredible elements of it. But, you know, it's an ensemble. And really, the best thing about that show is incredibly smart people talking rapid fire as they walk down a corridor and solve problems. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, it's hard to, for anything to jump out. Um because of the nature of our viewing habits. David wonders that, or points out, that I mentioned last month that we had wanted to get married on the 21st of April. Sounds like it caused some problems picking that particular day. Why was that date so important? Because it was the day we decided to change from friendship to, I guess, dating or being more than friends or... Whatever, we just, that was the day we decided we were going to date. There mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why. All right. So it was an anniversary of sorts. Yep. The other thing was, actually the thing that sticks in my head more, is the symmetry of it. Because Jen's sister's birthday is April 15th. <laughs> my birthday is April 17th. And um, we said arbitrarily, you know what? Uh, did we say it was? We said Dobby's birthday. No, yeah, we, we said Scuttle. Yes, yeah, so we said Scuttle. Our old, our old uh, Lhasa Apso mutt. Her birthday, we're going to say, was the nineteenth, and then we got married on the twenty-first. Yep. So we uh, every other day for a week in April, mm-hmm. we had something we had to do. So I always just kind of like that symmetry of that. But yeah, there was the anniversary thing as well. Um, remember the rose corner. <laughs> All righty. Yes. After a minute, I totally forgotten about the rose corner, so you just said that. Even though it is emblazoned on my <laughs> finger. Yep. All righty. Um, next up, Larry wonders, is there one thing that you and Jen believe is missing in your life? Presumably it's not children, because you said you have no desire to have children. So, is there something you wish you could do that you haven't done? Or something you wish you could have that you don't have? And has the board game business been an impediment in any way towards achieving your one big missing thing? Uh, uh, footnote, a lot of money is not a valid answer. <laughs> um, I think <clears throat> probably there's an awful lot of really nice things about living in Malta. A lot of things I really like about living in Malta. But, um, and sometimes this is also one of the things I like about living in Malta, and that would be that we are um, fairly insulated from a lot of stuff, meaning we are far away from everything. And that's kind of nice in that I'm a bit of a privacy nut, not that you would know that, being married to a guy who has a YouTube channel. <laughs> um, but it's, I just like 
not having to put on makeup and make sure I'm dressed, you know, perfectly to walk out the front door to walk the dogs. You know, like people are going to say, oh, that's Jennifer Ham," and, you know, I don't, whatever. So I like that. Um, on the other hand, I think I would do a lot more stuff. I would be going to like galleries and looking at museums and doing more cultural oriented things if we lived say on Malta or if we were back in England. I'd probably pop into London once a month just to go to the museums and see stuff and you know go to openings or something like that. So I I think if there's something that's missing in my life it would be a bit more of that sort of interaction with culture. Culture. And Jen is a cultured in- lady. Well, that would also include more travel because there are so many places I still want to see. Um, and it's, it's my own fault because I've now adopted two dogs and, you know, they do definitely hamper your ability to travel. Um, but I, I think if we, if we had made a different life choice after um, last year with losing both our pups and didn't have dogs now, we might not live in Malta anymore. We might be off traveling and spending three months in Thailand and three months in... Uh, New Zealand and three months somewhere else and three months and somewhere else and just basically hopping around and home basing out of a place for a few months and enjoying that. Yeah, and honestly, that's what I thought your number one thing was going to be. Well, and that would be a lot more of a lot more culture stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So it does dovetail. I mean, Jen's parents spent what must be over a decade living in a uh, you know in a big mobile home RV. Yep. Or spending and, a lot of their time. I mean, they still had a home base in in uh, yeah, Eastern but, Washington, but. You know, Jen loves that idea. I she, do. she loves the romance of the open road and, um, and you know, being so. able to pick up sticks and go wherever. And yes, but have the comfort of home right there. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. be able to travel with our dogs. Yep. So that is, I mean, I'm not, forget hi. That is Jen's bucket list right there. Yep. And um, yeah, so she's been talking about it for years. Every year we talk about. Next year is the one where we're going to do it. Actually, next year we are going to do it. Damn it! That's what you said last year. Well, I it's going to happen this year. So y'all have been warned that next summer we are not going to be sitting around in Malta. All right, Jen's putting it on. <laughs> she's putting you all on notice. Yep. We'll see how that goes. We might be doing things from the road, but we are definitely going to do some traveling next summer. Yes, um, we shall see. We tell ourselves that every Actually, year. Actually, maybe we should have. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yep. Yeah. But so travel, more culture. That's a good answer. Um, for me, uh, it's a, it's such a cop out, but I'm going to say nothing. I've. Well, you spent a lot more time traveling than I have because yeah. he's done so much travel for work, mm-hmm. and so for him, it's nice. He's just happy to be home. Yep. Yep. He's happy to be in, not yeah. out. Yeah, I don't. I can't really think of anything. That I'm like, oh man, this this is what this is what drives me nuts. This is what's missing for my life. In all honesty, I I'm, I I. Could not be happier. He has Every... chickens. He's got puppies. <laughs> yep. I'm surrounded by my girls. Yep. Loads of girls. Uh, so, I mean, everything's fine with me. I mean, and you, and you said not a lot of money is not a valid answer. Honestly, that's my only answer. But only in that. I mean, I, I'm not. I, 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 it's, it's not like I want to be rich or anything like that. I, but I regret not being able to fly first class. It's a stupid little thing, but um, I, I spent so many years flying so much coach, I, and I just hated it. Um, you know, it's just unthinkable to me to do it now, so it's a real extreme thing. It's why I don't cover conventions in the States, because I don't want to have to spend you know, 12 hours in planes and stuff like that. But uh, 
There's just something about first class travel or even business class travel that uh, it is. I mean, so it, it's not about the money per se. It, 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 it does come back to travel. I mean, I guess I would like to travel and see. I mean, I want to go to New Zealand really bad. And I would like to see, you know, Malaysia. And heck, I'd like to see more Nordic uh, because we've only done very little in the Nordic oh, countries. Okay. And I've never seen the Aurora Borealis. And, um, and heck, I'd like to do space tourism. I'd like to do all these things. But to me, all of them kind of come, to, come back to money because it's interesting. We... Uh, Back when I was working full time, we we traveled, we we vacationed and traveled a lot more than we do now. And one, that's because we had a lot more money than we do now. Yeah. Um. You know, we had a lot of disposable income when I was working full time. But two, we had, I mean, I we had our lives that we wanted to get away from. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I need to get away from this rat race I'm in. Let's spend a month on the road or whatever, and it was worth the the hassle and the stress and everything you'd have to go through to make that happen. Um, now, I don't have a life that I would actively like to run away from. And so the stress and hassle involved with travel is a much more onerous burden. And you know, when we get to travel with your parents, mm-hmm. that puts in stark relief the uh, you know the experience because because you know Nancy does so much of the planning and all that and we're just kind of along for the ride. I mean, I want to travel more, but I want to travel like a rich person travels, mostly just because it's stress free. You just get on the plane; it's a super comfy bed you get to spend the whole time on. Then you get off and you get to see whatever you want, and then you go on to the next thing. So yeah, I mean that's the one thing that's missing in my life is a lot of money so that we can travel first class wherever we want to go. <laughs> which is a slightly different shade on sort of the same answer Jen gave. All righty. When answering questions in the podcast, you're always looking for the question mark or the actual question. The person asked, that is true. When you receive all these emails with questions, in addition to non-question text, uh, do you completely ignore and not bother reading anything else in the email that isn't a question, or do you read it and sometimes respond to it personally off the air? Your podcast Q&A session seems to indicate that for the most part, you completely ignore anything in the email that's not a question. Uh, I can see why you think that, and it, that is definitely true. Here's the thing. Maybe more than anything else, I think my brand, the Rotto brand, is synonymous with spontaneity. I don't like to have a whole bunch of lists of things at the ready. Um, I don't like to stack the deck to make sure everything's going to work out the same way. I like just to let things happen and be very natural and fluid and organic and spontaneous. So that goes for these Q&As as well. I mean, I could, and you know, believe me, Jen's not happy about that at all. She would much rather, okay, let's look at all these things. Let me list all my answers so I can come up with the perfect thing. And I'm like, no, 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 it's more fun just to, you know, like we're having a real conversation. I mean, you don't get to prepare for a real conversation. I think that makes the content I, or we in this case, produce more interesting and compelling. Even if we don't give necessarily the best answers because we're doing it off the top of our head. And so, you're right. When the, when the letters come, when the emails come in, actually, I used to just forward them all. I auto forward them into a Q&A directory. But now that I do the game half separate from the personal half, I do have to screen them first to know which directory to put them in so I can read. So when they first come in, I do look at them, but very briefly. I just kind of skim them over to see, is this a personal question or a game question, so I can put them in the correct directory. 
or if there's both, I put a copy in each of my two, my QA personal and my QA games directories. But then I try and forget about it as much as possible. And that's not too hard because usually it'll be several weeks before I answer them. Then, while we're filming, like I said, I'm trying to be spontaneous and just, you know, just off the top of my head. But there's a third step. After we're done recording this, I got to take all these files off my camera. I'm recording this with my camera and the same mic I use to film my run-throughs. I got to take all these videos, send them through Audacity, edit it all together, and that takes forever and, uh, and all that stuff. But then I have to post the video and I have to make a blog post. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the show notes for my po- for Rado Talks Through, the podcast, I list every single question that's asked. I list every single game I talk about. I list everything that's covered. And the thing is, that takes a long time. And so, for that last step, when I am making the list of right, I don't remember what questions I asked. I certainly don't remember what order they were in. <laughs> that is when I actually go through and read the entirety of the emails from front to back. Because you're right, Larry. I mean, I can see here. Um, that you actually have a whole bunch of extra stuff in, in your email. That's when I read them all, and um, you know, and sometimes there'll be other stuff, and I'll respond to things directly. Also, there have been times when I'm skimming them originally, I'll just rep- reply to that person immediately and say, yeah, you know, I'm just going to tell you this right now rather than ha- you having to wait a month or a month and a half till I cover it in the podcast. So they do get read in their entirety, um, just so people know. <laughs> it's just... It's after the fact, again, because that's my brand, baby, is spontaneity. Okay, and then finally, these questions from Natalie that squeezed in at the last second, honey pie. Okay. Natalie asks, what is the weather like in Malta at Halloween and Christmas? Oh, uh, well, I like October. I think October is the best month. Um, I think it's reasonable temperatures, like around 70, 75, and... Typically, October is a rainier month, so um, Gozo, Malta, they both have gotten green again, so that's nice. Um, let's see, and then Christmas, I, it's colder, probably around 60, 65 degrees, maybe down to 50 when it gets cold. Um, but one thing I do remember is the day of Christmas, uh, I think the first year that we were here, I was in my shorts and sandals, and we were going for a walk in Chadwick Lakes, and I was splashing around in a creek okay. on Christmas Day. So, it, and, and shorts and, and sandals. Yeah. So it's not like that, maybe quite that warm every year, but it's not, not cold. Yeah. Okie doke. You mentioned another podcast. You have no idea about the town of Essen outside of the Mesa Convention Center. What do you eat when you're there? <laughs> Don't you go to restaurants or go shopping? No. Or do you eat everything at the hotel? Well, we have been very, very fortunate um, in that people take care of us. Yes. We are consummate couch surfers, Jen and I. Um, the first year we ever went to Essen, long before Rado Runs Through was a thing, as when we were doing one of those long road trips in the Bongo. And at, for that one, we were staying at a local campground. And I think we were just eating at, you know, fast Foods. schnitzel places yeah. um, just as we well, drove. Whatever was between the campground and the convention center. I don't think we ate out at all that time. I can't remember. And, and also there's food at the convention. So Yeah, so we ate the convention food, which is excellent. You know, all the, the, the stuff you can get there, really, really good stuff. Um, but for the last three years, I guess, yeah, um, we have been hosted 
by good friends and fans of the show. And um, so we eat with them. And so if they've got a favorite restaurant they want to go to, we will be happy to tag along. Ooh, what's and I, we have no idea what the names of these places are and uh, couldn't tell you anything about them because we were just in the back seat of the car yep. and saying, ooh, well, whatever you think is good is good with us. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and, and that driving. includes just going back to your place and just having dinner there. Yep. Um, there was that one really good place. I'm sure Karthik will remember the name of it that we really liked. Remember when we went twice last mm-hmm. year there? Do you remember what that? No, I have no idea. Oh, man, it was so good. What kind of food was it? Uh, I have to admit, I'm really not much of a foodie, so I don't even remember what Jen's talking about. Oh, okay. Remember we had to stand in lines at the different places? There was pasta, and there was burgers, and there was oh, yeah. okay, salads and yeah, stuff. Yeah. We went there yeah. twice? Yeah, we went there twice. Okay. Well, we'll have to ask. We'll, we'll post it if anybody I think cares. That, I think that was a chain restaurant, though. Well, I think it, it wasn't like a chain like McDonald's, but it was, it yeah. was a branded yeah, restaurant yeah. that there were several of. Yep. But um, if anybody cares, we can find out from Karthik what the name of that place was. Yeah, sorry, folks. I have no idea. Um, yes, we do eat out, but we couldn't tell you the first thing about where we eat out uh, because we have always relied on the kindness of strangers. Um, they've been very, very nice to us. Yeah, yep. Okay, and that's it, folks. No more personal questions. Like I said, it was a crazy short list this month, but if you want to send some new ones in, questions at rotto.com is the place to go. And otherwise, that is it, folks. All done. Join us again in just a few weeks where I will be flying solo doing an Essen Spiel preview show where, oh man, I hope I don't have to talk about a thousand games. We'll see how long the list is. <laughs> it, won't, it won't be short. But otherwise, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thought you were going to leave me hanging there. Bye! Bye!